BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. You've been walking now for several hours on the rough mountain path. Your warrior father is riding ahead, fully armored and keeping a lookout. Your mother is driving the wagon, which is tethered to two oxen. The wagon holds all of your worldly possessions, except for the sword gifted by your father, which you always carry on your person. You come up over a ridge, revealing a vast valley before you, anchored by a massive black lake. A tattered wooden sign reads appropriately, Shadow Lake. There's a settlement on the opposite bank, far off in the distance. Smoke emanates from the chimneys of the thatch-roofed wood, stone, and plaster dwellings. This must be the village of Shadow Lake, which your parents have spoken of. Surrounding the lake is dense forest, which your eyes cannot penetrate more than a few feet. Immense mountains rise high in all directions. This is your new home. What do you do first? If this sends a shiver of anticipation down your spine, you might be a Dungeons & Dragons player. One of the many millions of people who have been captivated by this groundbreaking game. When it debuted in 1974, Dungeons & Dragons was something the world had never seen before. Not quite. Wargaming was nothing new, but Dungeons & Dragons paired the tactical qualities of tabletop miniature wargames with the flexibility and imagination of group storytelling in a unique way. Led through these imaginary adventures by a referee of sorts called the Dungeon Master, each player in D&D developed a customized character, complete with a unique persona and set of tangible attributes to be guided through the adventure cooperatively with other players. Unlike common board games that were meant to be played and concluded in one sitting, in D&D, both your character and the adventure were ongoing and upgradable, creating a more intense and lasting sense of continuity for players and dungeon masters alike. Within a few years of its release in 1974, this game will curiously gain a reputation for being subversive and very demonic in some circles. It will become a worldwide phenomenon as well, more popular now than ever, in fact drawing communities of bright, gifted, imaginative people together, giving them a home to explore their imaginations, world-building abilities, and group cooperation skills. All of this had been unimaginable just a few years prior to its creation when the game's main creator, 
Gary Gygax, was just a random dad trying to put food on the table, working on his hobby whenever he could. Gary, who had grown up on his father's fantasy stories before graduating to the fantasy tales of Robert E. Howard's Conan the Barbarian series and the Hobbit and Dragon-infused world of J.R.R. Tolkien, loved gaming, even when he made almost no money at it. Despite some real meager beginnings, he refused to give up on paying the bills through sword and sorcery gaming. He made tons of connections with gamers, studied the games he loved and the games they loved, and even produced early editions of Dungeons and Dragons in his basement, hand-packing the boxes that would become so iconic. Gygax's new board game soon became a massive success, but one fraught with near-constant problems. Warnings and accusations of psychological dangers, allegations of satanic worship, costly lawsuits, broken partnerships, and suspect business decisions plagued Gary and his world of Dungeons and Dragons for decades. Parents protested Dungeons and Dragons, believing it was a gateway for their children into supernatural terror and even damnation. School districts banned it. School districts. Even today, there are many still who view Dungeons and Dragons as something suspect. Its players as somehow disturbed. So how exactly did Dungeons and Dragons become so controversial? Is there any credence to these claims? What went into the creation of this beloved game? And how was it almost brought down by cultural forces that accused it of just about every evil there is? Will you roll the dice and follow your dungeon master to this murky landscape? Join me today on my quest to bring light to the darkness of Dungeons and Dragons, probably make quite a few devil and nerd jokes, and have a lot of fun learning about a game that still holds a special place in my heart, in the sword and sorcery, dragon lairs and treasure, sexy half-elden maiden edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday and again, Happy New Year, Meat Sacks. Did you hear how excited I got trying to say half elven maiden? Word maiden was upcoming. And I, <laughs> I just got flustered. Uh, 2023 is here. By the time you hear this, recording this with just a few days left yet in 2022 for me. Uh, welcome to the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, the SDM, aka Suck Dungeon Master. Helen Keller's guide dog, cleric of Nimrod, and you are listening to Time Suck. Two short announcements, and then we are off and running. Summer Camp 2023, baby. The second wet, hot, bad magic summer camp is a fucking go. We are still locking down the final details as I record this, but uh, tickets will go on sale the week of January 16th. The week of January 16th in phases. OG campers get first dibs, followed by patrons, and then general admission. Uh, there is a limited number of tickets available. Uh, more details on all of this to follow. Camp begins on Thursday, September 21st, ends on Sunday, September 24th. Camp will take place in the Poconos, just outside of Inquinunk, Pennsylvania, on hundreds of private acres that'll be there that weekend just for us. Sharing it with no one. Hiking trails, arts and crafts, ropes course, big-ass heated pool, rock climbing wall on one side of the pool, a yoga studio, private lake at our disposal with a boat to pull tubers, numerous bars, modern accommodations, modern accommodations with hot showers in every cabin, Wi-Fi everywhere, a custom uh, 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 way to add reserve, you know, and reserve activities through this app. There we go. Custom app. That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> reserve activities. Make sure you don't miss marquee events like another live scared to death and a big comedy night. Stand-up comedy night where I will be performing with my buddy Chad Daniels for the first time in a decade. Fucking pumped for that. And there will be uh, more awesome comics that will be flying in. Tickets will be approximately $1,300 and are all-inclusive. 
covering food, drinks, accommodations, no cots, no canvas tents this year, uh, covering activities. Think about how a cruise ship works, right? But on land, you get there, we provide the rest. Camp last year was magical. Uh, this is going to be a million times more organized, more accommodating, uh, more activities. There'll be a way to have a payment plan instead of having to buy the ticket in one chunk. Uh, karaoke night, yes, we'll be back. Bigger, sillier. There'll be numerous meet and greets to get a chance to chat it up with Lindsay, myself, and yes, uh, the rest of our staff uh, will be there, our in-house uh, Suck Dungeon staff all weekend as well. And again, more details to come soon. Just want you to please put it on your calendar. Uh, we are swinging for the fences. Uh, going going big for this one this year, hoping to keep it going and build it bigger and bigger going forward. Uh, also, so yeah, very excited for that. Also, the ver- uh, first Bad Magic Productions donation of 2023 is going to the Museum of Tolerance. I uh, don't have a total amount to give you at this uh, very moment because the end of the month has not come. I'll mention that later. For me, as I record this, the Museum of Tolerance is the only museum of its kind in the world. The MOT is dedicated to challenging visitors to understand the Holocaust in both historic and contemporary contexts and confront all forms of prejudice and discrimination in our world today. For more info, you can uh, visit museumoftolerance.com. Sadly, less than eight decades from the horrors of the Holocaust, uh, anti-Semitism on the fucking rise again. And it's not just athletes like Kanye and Kyrie Irving or conspiracy theorists like David Icke or Alex Jones. We have politicians in office right now who have recently uh, spoken at fundraising events put on by known outspoken anti-Semites. I've been outspoken about rising anti-Semitism for years now, uh, ever since digging into conspiracies here in this show and finding out that time and time again, they lead back to a core belief in a secret Jewish cabal who want to take over the world, even though no such cabal has ever existed ever. And it's dangerous to believe otherwise. And just fucking sad that people choose to be that ignorant. Uh, feels good to donate to this important nonprofit. So thank you. And that's it. Next week, I'll really start promoting the Burn It All Down stand up tour kicking off in Spokane and Boise coming up quick. Uh, all right. For the uninitiated, what is Dungeons and Dragons? Well, D&D is a, a board game of sorts set quite literally in Satan's colon. First thing you have to do if you want to play is master a powerful conjuring spell along with some basic protection and transmutation spells. You're going to have to conjure Be- Beelzebub, start the game, and you're going to want to be careful when you do so. <laughs> oh, dear. He will not be happy. He's going to try and eat your soul. He's going to try and eat your soul, and then you're going to lose the game and also, you know, your, uh, your soul. So it's kind of a pretty big bummer if you really think about it, uh, you know, if you get it wrong. Uh, to avoid this dreadful fate very quickly, you will need to transmutate yourself into, uh, I would suggest, a powerful little flying ant. Something of similar size, strength, toughness, mobility. Uh, get your die rolling hands warmed up. You're going to need to roll like a champ. Then, hopefully, once you've uh, given yourself the right rolls and been able to transform, uh, hurry, fly up into Satan's butthole after tossing a little protection from energy spell in your tiny ant ass in case he tries to swat or smush you. Now, quickly, push your way into his butthole. Get up on in there. Get in the colon. Protect it from his stomach acid. You know, and whatnot by the magic. And then, now, you turn back into a fucking character class-based self and get ready for your quest. Now, uh, wait. No, no, you should not transmutate, actually, into an ant, the more I think about it. Better idea. More straightforward. Just stay as you are and use a basic teleportation spell. Bingo, bango. Take you and your entire fucking campaign party into Satan's colon after protecting everyone from stomach acid and whatever nightmares Satan eats with some protection spells, of course. No. No, wait. No, uh, uh, Dungeons & Dragons and Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, primary game played for decades now. Uh, it's, a, it's a board game where you can play almost anywhere except for ridiculous places like inside of evil entities' colons. I use the term board game also loosely. It's a game. You don't, they don't have to have a board. 
Uh, D&D is set in a medieval fantasy world in which players form a group made of different races, fantasy races, outside of the character class of humans. Characters are uh, different classes, barbarians, druids, fighters, sorcerers, rangers, etc., all led through the story by the dungeon master who narrates their adventure. Their adventure. Uh, players determine how to respond to the events in the game and the success of their actions are determined by rolling dice. The dice are four-sided, six-sided, eight-sided, 10-sided, 12-sided. Most of the choices in the game decided by the infamous 20-sided die. Uh, each player's character class, race, class, strengths, right, weaknesses, I think I said class twice, uh, all play into the success of their actions. It's such a great blend of a lot of customization set within a fantasy world full of a lot of rules so everyone knows how to play together. You know, so a lot of rules, but also a lot of room to make your own choices. There's uh, also quite a bit of chance involved with all the dice rolling, but, um, you know, lots of room for strategy and storytelling as well. It's a very special blend that uh, makes it a very special game. Well, in the current fifth edition of AD&D, there are 12 different character classes. In the original D&D box set, there were actually only three main classes a character could play, so less, less choices early on. There was cleric, magic user, and fighting man. As for races, while there are now nine different races, players could originally choose from four. Human, elf, dwarf, or hobbit. Uh, later renamed halfling after Tolkien's estate sent out a little cease and desist. Uh, I like the fighting man character class. I am fighting man. Makes me picture an old knockoff action figure from the 80s. Like when I was a kid, I loved He-Man, Star Wars, and G.I. Joe action figures. All right, that kind of shit was all I wanted for my birthday, for Christmas, for several years. Save up all my lawnmower money for these figures. Uh, I was lucky enough to get a lot of them. My mom did the best she could, right, to spoil us with some gifts. Grandparents as well. Uh, but sometimes from like a rogue aunt or uncle or, you know, second cousin or some shit. Someone I was lucky, honestly, looking back to get anything from, I would get a weird, cheap knockoff figure instead. Uh, there were so many of them. Like instead of like Chewbacca from Star Wars, it might be an unnamed kind of chewy looking creature from a derivative universe called Star Raiders. <laughs> for like much less money instead of he-man for masters of the universe it might be an unnamed like shrunken he-man kind of mutated he-man-ish looking guy uh like shorter weaker not nearly as smart maybe uh from galaxy heroes instead of duke from gi joe it was commander chaos from commando force brought to you by sears <laughs> not even kidding i am fighting man watch out for my melee sword it can cut you badly and do not think for a moment you can harm me. Your weak weapon device will not get past my defense shield. I can defend any attack with my mighty defense shield. I already have a janky commercial uh, worked out for Fighting Man. Fighting Man, Fighting Man, I am a fighting man. Watch out for my melee sword. This is my defense shield. Goblin, troll, elf, wizard, fight, 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 fight. Master, witch, orc, ogre, fight, 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 fight. Vampire, wraith, spider, bad guy, fight, 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 fight. Fighting man, fight bad guys. Fighting man, fight monsters. Fighting man, loves good guys. Fighting man, loves maidens. Fighting man hates conversation. Fighting man has limited emotion. Don't ask fighting man questions. Fighting man is one dimensional. Fighting man lacks true character depth. Fight, 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 f
Uh, each race in OG D&D possesses uh, unique traits and abilities, many of which are helpful in the context of dungeoneering and combat. Humans are typically the most numerous, versatile, and culturally diverse. Elves are graceful, patient, and have a connection to nature. Dwarves fucking suck. Uh, no, they're short, uh, hardy, and bearded. Halflings, short, stealthy, and lucky. Uh, since the first publication of D&D in 1974, this game has continued to evolve with new rulebooks, modules, and adventures that expand the world and what is possible. The 2014 Player's Handbook, 5th Edition, 5e, launched with a record nine playable character races, as I mentioned. Dwarf, Elf, Halfling, Human, Dragonborn, pretty cool, Gnome, Half-Elf, Half-Orc, and uh, uh, Muskrat. The Muskrat has not, unfortunately, been a big hit. Just not able to do a lot. It's not able to upgrade its defensive abilities, you know, since it can't wear anything but leather armor and still be able to actually move. And it's so small, no more than four and a half pounds. Uh, for most foes, uh, they can literally completely crush it, armor or not, just by stepping or, or stomping on it. Also, uh, unable to hold a, a weapon bigger than a very small dagger, and it attacks at a one die eight minus nine, which means it can literally never land an attack, no matter what die you roll. Uh, its arms are just, you know, too short, not built for thrusting, but it can hide pretty well during some battles because it can uh, stay underwater for up to 17 minutes at a time. No, the ninth race is the tiefling spelled tiefling. Why do you fucking do that guys? Why, why just, just spell it tiefling. Uh, maybe the 10th race can be muskrat. Pretty cool. If you could win a quest with a couple muskrats in your party, more important than races or classes. That's the real cornerstone, uh, cornerstone of creating a Dungeons and Dragons character. RPGs such as Dungeons & Dragons uh, role-playing games are built on engaging and complex characters. Indeed, if you can't have living, breathing, evolving worlds, what's the point? And you got to have, uh, you know, multidimensional characters with unique personalities and skills to do that. Which is why there is now so much more variety and dimension than there was with Fighting Man, Cleric, or Magic User. Uh, RPG classes define characters based on their skills, abilities, personality, and nature. It's these categories that make D&D complex and engaging. You can combine different races and classes to make vastly different kinds of characters, often with conflicting abilities and behaviors, right? Just like us, uh, just like us regular meat sacks. Your character will come from a class that has certain special skills and traits. The main 12 official classes are barbarian, bard, cleric, druid, fighter, monk, paladin, ranger, rogue, sorcerer, warlock, and wizard. There are now also blood hunters and artificers uh, used in some campaigns, but they're not the player's handbook, so they're not official. What's cool about this world is you can customize it so much, right? You can add your own lore. There's these like uh, addendum, these, uh, you know, accessories that will, that will add things if you choose to add them to the kind of the core of what's currently uh, official within the D&D world. You know, you can, you can make up your own character class and race and whatever if you want to get in that deep and uh, everybody in your party agrees to do that. It might not be official, but the gameplay can be basically the same. Uh, you know, have fun, get especially creative. Uh, there is not an agreed upon best class, just one that suits your character better. The barbarian was initially a subclass of the fighter. However, it evolved into a standalone class known for excelling in combat through a combo of fury and force. The barbarian often less skilled than the fighter, but powerful enough to make the deficit with, uh, make up the deficit with overall strength and aggression. Think, think berserker or think Conan the barbarian, huge influence on that character class. Bards are versatile characters that are capable of fighting and using their minds to avoid fighting. The main characteristic of a bard is they have a, a way with words, often pretty good with a song. Uh, they can turn words into magic spells. Maybe a cleric is right for you. 
Combining strength and divine magic, clerics are masters of healing. Characters in this D&D class can control the undead and have powers over life and death in some cases, which make them extremely useful in a number of situations. Or you can be a monk, a skilled fighter with a mystical edge. You can see these characters as masters of discipline, introverted, not necessarily physically imposing. Uh, they could be deadly thanks to their apparent connection to another realm. And that can go on and on. There are so many options to choose from. Just maybe don't pick uh, what, I, what I think is probably the weakest option, and that is the, uh, the wrestler character class from the Russian Realms expansion pack. Uh, super good at avoiding arrest. Not very good at fighting, unless their opponent is a child or a small woman. Uh, very good at quiet little jerk and soft shame clock. It's going to bother no one. But that almost never comes in handy, right? Uh, pun not intended, but acknowledged on any quests. What is big deal? A important part of campaign now. Uh, put me in back. And there's actually halfling kid. I promise nothing bad happened to them. Other than maybe get stabbed. So I come. Fucking Andre Chikatilo. Never know what he's going to uh, jerk his way into an episode. 2023 and he's still wrestling. Uh, you can also choose your character's alignment in the original Dungeons and Dragons game from 1974. All characters and monsters are either lawful, neutral, or chaotic. Uh, AD&D, the trilogy of its uh, core gameplay books, the Monster Manual, the Player's Handbook, and the Dungeon Master's Guide were published between 1977 and 1979 and introduced a second axis, allowing characters and creatures to additionally be described as good, neutral, or evil. And these two axes uh, you know, have nine independent combinations. For certain monsters and uh, other creatures not sapient enough to make decisions based on morality, there's also this 10th, you know, unaligned kind of morality class. Uh, law and chaos represent the opposing principles of order versus entropy, control versus chaos, society versus the individual, and stability versus change. Law and chaos are neither good nor evil. They just simply are. According to former TSR employee Tim Kask, law represents predictability and rational thought, while chaos represents the opposite. As originally conceived, lawful meant that you were a creature of habit, not that you wore a badge. You could be predicted to react in a familiar way, given a familiar situation time and time again. You weren't a, a kender or an elf who was constantly flitting off, okay? That's chaotic. The personality that can't focus or won't focus on something, uh, or you literally have no idea how they're likely to react at any given provocation. Even if they reacted one way before, they might react a different way. That is chaotic. Right? So much nuance and thought has gone into this, right? You can see how immersive and addictive this game can be. To me, the game being so damn complex and immersive, that is where the real danger with D&D or AD&D lies, right? Forget satanic panic concerns, not going to lose your soul and sense of reality to some dark entity, in my opinion, at all. Uh, instead, maybe worry about simply avoiding too much of real life because the life of your character in the game is way more fun. No fucking bills to worry about. None of the physical limitations you might find uh, in this world. Not worried about losing weight or getting your bum shoulder checked out. You know, not uh, sad because so-and-so doesn't feel the same romantic feelings you feel for them. Not stressed out about your financial future, what you're supposed to do with your life. Now, fuck that. You're, you're a badass half-elf ranger named Horan. Level 20, motherfucker. 194 hit points. You got a longbow with a plus 13 attack bonus doing one die eight plus eight damage. You speak five languages. You wear studded leather armor. Cool as fuck. Plus three. Overall armor class of 20. Dexterity of 20 with a plus five bonus. You're in perfect shape. Right? And you're fucking around with an elven lover and some dragonborn smoke show. Yeah, she's kind of a monster and has scales and horns and shit. But also, such a perfect peach ass. You're crushing it in Forgotten Realms. Who gives a fuck how you're doing in Milwaukee? Right? This is, this is why I don't play now. These type of games, the way my brain works, I don't really enjoy playing them unless I can devote so many hours to them. Like, really get lost in them. When I was a dungeon master so many moons ago now, 
Yeah, I'm a fucking nerd. You knew that. I would spend so much time trying to build out an amazing campaign for characters to fight their way through. You know, I didn't want to just, you know, follow a quest directly from the box. Not 100%. Wanted to modify, customize it, add more monsters, deeper storylines. I could go on. If I was playing as a character and I did have a half, half elf ranger named Horin, level 18, peaked out, not, not 20. And, uh, and I wanted to keep going, keep leveling up, more side quests, right? Long lasting campaigns. Let's get that treasure. Let's kill another dragon. I want to draw pictures of my characters. I wanted to make them real. I daydreamed about them a lot. Maybe masturbated to some sexy elf drawings and sometimes pretended I did live in another land and did have an elf lover. Don't you fucking judge me. I can just get so lost in that shit and it's wonderful. Uh, but for some of us, it can kind of get in the way of responsibilities and relationships with real people in this realm. I've had to literally throw away games in the past because I would just uh, do stuff like pretend to be asleep and sneak out of bed to play uh, something like World of Warcraft in the middle of the night. Then be exhausted the next day, uh, but also keep playing. Do shit like skip meals or not shower to squeeze in a little bit more playing time. And I'm not judging you if you play right now, by the way. Maybe you're able to exercise a lot more restraint. If you can manage life in this world and have a, you know, a fucking another life or, or three or four in, in, uh, in the world of fantasy, in the world of Dungeons and Dragons. Well, honestly, I'm, I'm more jealous of you than anything. You lucky bastard. Uh, back to moral alignments for a second now. Good and evil represent a familiar moral divide of altruism versus harm, kindness versus hatred, mercy versus malevolence. A standard approach is to consider good and evil to be objective cosmological forces rather than subjective or debatable. Any given creature is either evil or not evil. Best known version of of D&D's alignment system is a three by three grid, right? Showing those nine valid alignment combinations of lawful good, neutral good, chaotic good, lawful neutral, true neutral, chaotic neutral, Lawful evil, neutral evil, and chaotic evil. A lawful good character is a protector. Uh, the iconic example of a lawful good character is a paladin, a holy knight who protects the weak and destroys evil. I had a paladin character, right? Great healing abilities. I remember rightly or wrongly uh, as the paladin being harder for me to develop, kind of shitty at lower levels, but badass at higher levels. You know, uh, peeking around the internet though, doesn't seem like a lot of people agree. I would, ha- I would, ha- I would always like uh, try and pair them with like somebody playing like a basic fighter or something that has more abilities in the early levels, uh, more strength, more hit points. Nerdsandscoundrels.com, pretty comprehensive gaming and entertainment site says this, ah, the paladin covered in armor, swinging a giant sword and even casting spells. There's a lot to like about this class in the fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons. In fact, it's subclass options, maybe the strongest top to bottom of any class. A uh, different kind of good player may have uh, an alignment of chaotic good. This is a character who believes in freedom as the highest virtue. The iconic example of chaotic good is uh, maybe Robin Hood, right? Rebelling against authority is a way to protect the poor from poverty and suffering. I feel more of a kinship with chaotic good than lawful good. Lawful neutral character believes in principle and fairness. For example, a judge who treats all fairly and equally would be considered lawful neutral. True neutral character is neutral on both axes, cares not for any stance or alignment. This is often uh, described somebody who cares only for their own personal needs, rather than uh, neither inclined to hurt nor harm others, to obey or rebel. So maybe a bit of a sociopath, but a sociopath who doesn't go out of their way to harm others. Not a sadist, just uh, apathetic to both the success or suffering of others. A chaotic neutral character follows their heart, but without the willingness of self-sacrifice as a chaotic good character might. Great many adventurers are chaotic neutral, doing what they wish and rejecting all forms of authority, but also not going out of their way to be horrible fuckers. A lawful evil character is a tyrant. 
They have no moral qualms about punishing individuals for the supposed greater good of furthering society. The lawful evil villain is often actually easy to deal with, as they can be trusted to keep their word despite being a piece of shit. A neutral evil character is selfish and has no problem harming others to get what they want, if they can get away with it. A chaotic evil character is malevolent. A villain bent on revenge might be of this alignment. Where the most powerful lawful evil villains might aim to conquer the world, this might be preferable to their chaotic evil counterparts who just uh, who just want to destroy it. I read an, inter- uh, I read an interesting comment on Quora.com when someone posed the question, what moral alignment was Hitler? And someone answered, while it may be arguable that Hitler himself could have been chaotic or neutral evil, the Nazi regime was very definitely the epitome of lawful evil. I like that. Yeah, I would, I would say that Hitler leaned towards neutral evil. There was a method to his madness for the most part, just a horrible evil method. Many of those who followed him, however, his most devoted followers, uh, they did care about the law, Hitler's law. And following that law often had, you know, no uh, problem carrying out blatantly evil actions. Look, looking at you, Dr. Mengele. Once you've chosen a race, class, background, alignment, now it's time to get those uh, ability scores. Get the get those dice warmed up, baby. Time to roll. Following carefully written instructions, you'll roll a, a six-sided die four times, drop the lowest of the four scores to determine your character's beginning values for strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. Your scores in these areas help determine so many things in conjunction with your race and character class, what kind of spells you can learn, how likely to be killed you are, especially in the lower levels, how well you can fight, which weapons you're able to handle, and on and on. You add all this into an official character sheet. You can just print these out or buy them. There's free PDFs all over the web. You also roll uh, dice to determine your starting hit points. You'll pick, you know, like basically your health. You know, lose all your hit points, you're fucking dead. You'll pick weapons, proficiencies, and languages, and armor, speed, and initiative, and more based on character, class, and race. And you build this whole complex, real-feeling character. And you can give your character a name and backstory to help bring it to life. And all this might sound like way too much effort to just play a game. And for a lot of people, it is. If you're looking for something pretty mindless, like Yahtzee or Sorry, well, this ain't it. This is not blackjack or rummy. This is, uh, this is balls deep. This takes commitment. This is why some of the characters on Stranger Things would get so pissed when someone tried to back out of a scheduled night uh, to keep a campaign going. Right? The other party members, they've been scheming, jonesing for the next battles and objectives all week or longer. There's complexity, and, and they can't do it if they don't have the right party. They don't have enough fucking uh, powers. You know, they got to work in conjunction. You need the fighter to do this. You got to have the rogue sneak over here and do this. You got to have this fucking wizard come down with these spells, you know, for this, you know, coordinated attack. And somebody, you know, now has a girlfriend, and they fuck it up for everybody. Uh, this complexity, this richness, this world building, true escapism is what made D&D massively successful. There was just really nothing like it before. What made D&D a breakthrough innovation in gaming was that it combined two very different ways of thinking about the world. On the one hand, it entailed a preoccupation with mathematical models and rules, the roots of which can be traced back to Prussian officers perfecting the science of war with their own early war games. And then on the other hand, it reflected cultural trends of the 60s and 70s, including a recent fascination with history, myth, and fantasy. Uh, in particular, the fantasy and myth of the sword and sorcery subgenre. Uh, as well as a renewed appreciation for values such as cooperation and imagination. In 1977, Dungeons & Dragons will divide into basic and advanced versions of the game. The Monster Manual was the first book in the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons product line, introducing 350 different monsters in the gameplay. I used to love flipping through the Monster Manual, checking out cool illustrations. Uh, A year later, 1978, a 128-page hardcover called The Player's Handbook further expanded the world of advanced D&D. 
Finally, in 1979, TSR released the Dungeon Master's Guide, the third and final core Advanced Dungeon Dragons hardcover rulebook to Trinity is now complete. TSR, Tactical Studies Rules Incorporated, published Dungeons & Dragons content back when I played uh, until 1977 when Wizards of the Coast purchased the company. Then after three years of development, uh, they released Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition in 2000. In the biggest revision of D&D rules to date, this new edition of the game combined the basic and advanced D&D games into one unified game. Right, they've been separated for two decades. The new edition also allowed players to customize their characters in unique ways, introducing skills and feats into character creation. If you know anything about Dungeons and Dragons, then you probably also know that along with its success, the game has had uh, a lot of controversies throughout the years. If you don't buckle up, so much drama. Uh, from corporate struggles and so much infighting and fucking lawsuit after lawsuit and the later fear of satanic influence during the satanic panic of the 1980s, D&D has had a complicated and controversial legacy. Thank Nimrod none of that destroyed it because these games have literally changed thousands, if not millions of people's lives for the better, introducing them to their own imaginations, creative potential, lifelong friends, and teamwork. An example of this is the following letter, which was written by a soldier, U.S. soldier, served in Saudi Arabia as part of Operation Desert Shield in 1990, published in Dragon, a magazine for fantasy role-playing games. I am the only person in my six-member family, including both parents, to graduate from school and the only person in my family to graduate from college. I have AD&D games uh, to thank for much of that. I was introduced to gaming when I was 16 when my friends and I discovered the AD&D game. At the time, I was a fairly withdrawn underachiever. Through gaming, I learned that any obstacle can be overcome through some very simple principles. Teamwork, faith in friends, faith in your own abilities, perseverance, and dedication. These principles were buried behind piles of discarded soda canes and empty potato chip bags, and I learned them while surrounded by loyal friends who faced creatures that would make Arnold Schwarzenegger run in fear. In the meantime, my quote-unquote normal peers spent their weekends getting drunk, getting high, taking part in other normal activities. By playing this dangerous you know, quote-unquote game, my friends and I became adults. Well, hail Nimrod, I love that. Uh, and with that long intro complete, let's uh, let's dive further in. So how are we going to cover AD&D today? I know we already covered quite a bit. Uh, part of what makes Dungeons & Dragons so alluring is that it offers near-infinite possibilities. Literally hundreds of adventures you can go on. Each of the uh, campaigns can be modified by a DM or, uh, you know, people can simply write their own or the DM can write their own, sorry completely leading to an infinite number of potential stories and encounters uh it's amazing but also makes the world of DD very very big too big to cover every edition supplement in a two-hour podcast so what are we going to do with dungeons and dragons here well first we're going to take a look at a brief history of war games in general DD would be based off of earlier war games uh, before looking at some additional important influences of dungeons and dragons the fantasy and sci-fi literature that captivated american audiences in the 1950s and 1960s when gary gygax would begin developing his fascination with gaming and then actually developing games that would lead to D&D. Then we'll be diving into a time-suck timeline that'll take us through Gary Gygax's childhood to his development of Dungeons & Dragons and the many innovations and scandals and lawsuit after lawsuit that would follow. So follow me, your trusty SDM, again, the suck dungeon master, as we wade into the waters of sword and sorcery RPGs, sneak past litigious monsters hoping to end our quest, and examine the people and creatures who inspired and helped develop this magical world uh, might surprise you that war games, the kind of games that would lead to the creation of Dungeons and Dragons are almost as old as warfare, warfare itself. Uh, surprise me. Uh, simple games designed to represent battle existed in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia. 
uh, as early as the third century BCE. Go was created as early as the fourth century BCE, a favorite game of Chinese generals and statesmen. Uh, chess, the classic war game. I forget that it is technically a war game, uh, believed to have originated in the uh, Gupta empire of Northwest India way back in the sixth century CE. All of these games were symbolic of war. Think chess, right? With knights and pawns rather than simulating warfare itself. War simulation would, as far as we know, begin to emerge in Europe following the Enlightenment in the 19th century. Enlightenment thinkers believe that war, like anything else, could be understood scientifically and simulated using mathematical models. In Prussia, military officers attempted to make an increasingly accurate uh, simulation of warfare using models to represent all of the factors that determine the outcome of a battle. This process seems to have begun with Christopher uh, Weichmann, who created an expanded version of chess called uh, Konigspiel. The King's Game, just before the Enlightenment in 1664, uh, Weichmann claimed his game could uh, furnish anyone who studied it properly a compendium of the most useful military and political principles. Weichmann's game featured 30 pieces per side, instead, uh, yeah, 30 pieces per side instead of 16, and this was later modified substantially by Johann Christian Ludwig Helwig, master of the pages for the Duke of Brunswick in 1780. When he created a game called uh, Kriegspiel, literally war game, played on a board containing no less than 1,666 squares. There are just 64 on a chessboard. And Helvig's board featured a variety of terrain, had units representing infantry, cavalry, and artillery. Sounds complicated as fuck. Squares were painted different colors to represent different types of terrain. Pieces could move a different number of squares, uh, depending on what type of terrain they were crossing. The pieces represented units rather than individual soldiers. Helvig even created rules to represent entrenchment and the use of pontoons. Reminds me a, a, a bit. It's like a much more comprehensive version of like the war game Risk. Apparently, some people could understand and play it because in 1798, George Vinturinus oh of Schelvig now expanded on Helvig's game to create new Kriegspiel, new war game. Reminds me of Fighting Man. Fighting Man play war game. Uh, this game expanded the board to 3,600 squares, more than double what Helvig created, and featured a rule book that was 60 pages long. Man. Uh, war games were revised yet again following the Napoleonic Wars. In 1811, Prussian Baron George Leopold van Reisfitz. Nobody had fucking short names back then. And his son developed a new game that they called Instructions for the Representation of Tactical Maneuvers Under the Guise of a War Game. That is a title. Word Economy. Uh, not applied to names back then. Uh, also not mastered when it came to naming products that you were trying to market. Right? Risk. That has a fucking nice ring to it. One syllable. Instructions for the representation of tactical maneuvers under the guise of a war game. Does not have a nice ring to it. Imagine applying that type of titling logic to, say, uh, beverages. Hi, I'd like a uh, 20-ounce artificial sweetener-infused caramel-colored carbonated and caffeinated beverage preserved with potassium sorbate long rumored to contain prune juice. So, uh, uh, Dr. Pepper then. Uh, yeah, here it is, uh, also known by that name. I, uh, however, prefer the original proper title. Uh, the Baron's lengthy title game introduced many of the elements that came to define modern wargaming as a genre. It did away with the board entirely, was uh, instead played on a so-called map consisted, consisting of a special table covered in sand. Ceramic models would be placed on the table to represent terrain, not unlike the pewter figurines that would later come to represent characters in Dungeons and Dragons. Ah, the pewter figurines. Love to collect those little guys. Uh, Units were represented by miniature soldiers, colored red and blue, respectively. Each unit had a different speed, so they could move uh, a different distance across the map each turn. 
Game also featured dice to determine the success of actions and an umpire to adjudicate the outcome. So sort of like a dungeon master. The game was supposed to be mandatory for Prussian officers, but the rules were so fucking complex and tedious that a lot of officers were very reluctant to play it or were not able to play it because it was too hard. Guessing those guys didn't make the best real-life tacticians. Uh, in 1876, another Prussian, Colonel von Verde de Vernois, I believe, some name, uh, waiting wait for a, a Colonel fucking Bill Jones, but nope. Um, uh, this, this guy, von Verde fucking what's-his-nuts, produced a simplified version of this game that removed the dice and delivered more authority to the umpire, who's expected to be a veteran officer who could draw on his own combat experience to determine what the results of each player's action would be. These early war games would be used for a very different purpose than Dungeons and Dragons. For the Prussian military, war games were not understood to be an imaginative and immersive escape from reality. Uh, On the contrary, the experience that officers gained while playing these games was expected to have immediate application in the real world on the battlefield. Uh, game designers also understood that the more realistic, more detailed their models of warfare were, the more the simulation would prepare officers, right, for actual combat. In 1870, the militia army of Prussia defeated the professional army of France, and the Prussian success was attributed to war games. And then other Western militaries began to develop similar training exercises. In 1880, Charles Totten, lieutenant of the United States Army, developed a war game called Strategos. Not to be confused with the much simpler board game of Stratego, uh, no S that would be developed three decades later, 1910. I fucking love playing Stratego as a kid. Oh, I would love to play now. Uh, German-inspired war games were introduced to the U.S. Army in the late 19th century and incorporated into the curriculum of the Naval War College. But it would still be some time before war games were created for civilian amusement and escapism. Luminary science fiction writer H.G. Wells was among the first to create an amateur war game. In 1913, he created a game published as a rule book that had a great abbreviated title and a shitty full title. The abbreviated title is Little Wars. All right, awesome. The full title is Little Wars, a game for boys of 12 years of age to 150 and for that more intelligent sort of girl who likes boy games and books. What the fuck? That is so lengthy and also preposterously sexist, like so much so it feels like satire. Like, are you kidding me? Not only did HG think that it was okay to give this uh, rule book this title, but then the publisher, was also like, hey, no, it's cool. No, that's great. That'll do. And then no public outcry. So apparently a lot of parents back in 1913 were like, yeah, no, that, that feels fair. Who is this game for, HG? Boys and men. Any and all boys and men. 12 years old and older. Can girls also play it? Uh, not most. No, not most. Uh, most girls, being of, of course female, uh, are way too fucking stupid to play this game. With their, with their tiny little girl brains? That's too much. Now, most girls couldn't possibly begin to comprehend this game since it doesn't involve teacups and party dresses and flowers and stuff. I mean, some girls, like like one in a thousand, the most intelligent girls, they will be able to kind of understand and, and play this game a little bit. But of course, if they play a boy, any boy or man, between 12 and 150, that boy or man will fucking destroy them. Much like how a man would uh, beat a cat or a donkey in a game of chess. Uh, unlike the war games meant for military officers, Little Wars was meant to be fun and possibly even to satisfy impulses that might lead to actual wars, like a combat deterrent. Uh, Soon another feature of Dungeons & Dragons would emerge into the gaming scene, and that's role-playing. Evidence of what may be the earliest transition from wargaming to role-playing appeared in the pages of Life magazine in 1941. An article entitled Life Visits the Planet Azor described 19-year-old Frederick Pelton of Lincoln, Nebraska, 
who had organized a club around a fantasy world he called Atzor. Each initial member of this club, all whole boys and men, of course, this game required the ability to think complexly and not just clean dishes and sweep floors, created a persona who ruled a nation called Atzor. The group held parties in which attendees would hold court in their personas. Atzor parties were attended in costume, which generally resembled the dress of European royalty. They went, uh, they went big on this. This club eventually expanded to 400 young Nebraskans, many of whom, and I do find this disgusting and morally reprehensible, were women. And they would play queens and empresses. And I'm assuming those positions just required them to look pretty and be quiet and have no part in strategizing. And court gatherings uh, usually resulted in declarations of war and battles fought by the fucking men, of course. And they were uh, resolved using miniatures. Uh, but Atzor involved much more than simulated battles. Club members produced uh, Atzorian currency, a passport, a postal system, even a fucking dictionary of the planet's language. So, um, Samarkan, oh my God, Samarkandian. Uh, but as much fun as these uh, Nebraska nerds were having, this game did not spread like wildfire to other places in the world that had, you know, more to offer than, uh, than corn and boredom and pretty much just corn and boredom. Come on. No, it would take a long time for anything like this, uh, like this game to hit the commercial scene. The first commercially successful war game would be Tactics, designed by Charles Roberts in 1953. Not the Charles Roberts we met in the Amish suck who killed five Amish girls. Different Chuck Bobs. This fucking Chuck was also a railroad historian. And based on his obsession uh, with both wargaming and railroad history, most likely an incel. I'm not the only one who thought that. This Chuck is sometimes referred to as the father of, war- of board wargaming. Tactics pioneered uh, many game mechanics, which became standard in the board war game industry, including the odds ratio, combat results table, and variable movement costs for entering squares. Later hexes, containing different types of terrain. Chuck Bobbs sold tactics on a mail-order basis from his home in Cantonsville, outside of Baltimore, for six years, selling 2,000 copies and barely breaking even. Uh, he later formed the company Avalon Hill, though, and started publishing both Tactics 2 and then Gettysburg in 1958 a game in which players could simulate one of the most storied battles of the Civil War. Gettysburg was a huge success, and by 1962, Avalon Hill was the fourth largest producer of all adult board games in the United States. So good for him. Uh, Avalon Hill was uh, bought out by Hasbro in 1998. Then Wizards of the Coast bought it out in in 2004. And then Hasbro uh, bought it out again in 2021. So nice little success story for old Chuck Pops. Uh, We'll get into Gettysburg a bit more in the timeline. This game will be a major influence on Gary Gygax. Gary Gygax sounds like someone who would create D&D too, by the way. Gygax. Sounds like a Forgotten Realms term. Uh, By the 1960s, a new subculture had formed around wargaming in a variety of countries around the world. There were several magazines now for wargamers. Wargaming clubs had begun to appear on numerous college campuses, especially in the U.S. As with Gettysburg, wargamers turned to military history for new conflicts to simulate. Where the military games of the 19th century had been attempts to simulate current technology, war gamers created simulations for World War II, uh, the Crusades, the campaigns of Roman generals. Dedicated groups would arrange series of games known as campaigns in which each battle determined the starting conditions of the next. Though all these uh, concepts sound familiar to contemporary D&D players, Dungeons and Dragons was still years away at this point. The first step in the transition from war games to fantasy role-playing games occurred with an experimental game called Bronstein, hosted by Dave Wesley at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis in 1968. Wesley enjoyed war games but disliked their competitive nature because he was a fucking baby. A stupid little baby, and I will despise him forever. 
No, he's fine. Uh, he actually got sick of playing with other babies. Too often he felt games degenerated into pointless, unpredictive, or unproductive bickering. Another problem was that games lasted for hours and allowed for only two players. So in college wargaming clubs, it was uh, not uncommon at all to see a bunch of bored wargamers sitting around idly, waiting hour after hour for their chance to play next. Wesley decided to create an entirely new kind of war game. He took a game published in Strategy and Tactics magazine called The Siege of Bodenberg to use as a springboard for his experiment. Uh, the Siege of Bodenberg was designed by Henry uh, Bodenstedt, owner-proprietor of a hobby shop in New Jersey. And this game was one of the earliest known sets of rules, uh, had, you know, has one of the earliest known sets of rules for conducting battles with medieval miniatures. Sometimes people still play this old game, uh, not often. Mostly, it seems, at conventions, you know, like put on little demonstrations of how this game used to be played. It's a relatively simple war game in which an army of knights defends a medieval town against an invading force of Huns. The game called for miniature knights and Huns that could be purchased, of course, at Bodenstedt's shop. Wesley renamed the town Bronstein, set the siege during the time of Napoleon. More importantly, he modified the game to include multiple players playing together as well as a referee. Building directly off the back of the previous game. This is uh, common in today's story. One game leads to the next, to the next the next and then we arrive at D&D which keeps you know uh you know uh just changing and evolving you know somewhat as with a traditional war game two of the players assume the role of the French and Prussian commanders but like with Frederick Pelton and Atsor Dave Wesley introduced more players by allowing them to assume the roles of various parties in Bronstein right like the mayor the banker uh the university chancellor and others so a bunch of people could play uh, when interest in Wesley's experiment attracted 20 people he found roles for all of them each role had its own objectives and goals. Dude must have spent weeks planning all this out. And then it didn't really go well. He didn't think. The game quickly became chaotic. Every player announced that they wanted to do something different. Uh, Dave had to improvise things he didn't expect. His gameplay went on. And Wesley walked away from his experiment feeling that it was a, a failure. That the players had taken over the game. That the rules he had lovingly and painstakingly created were just fucking trampled. So depressed, he cut his own ears off. And he jammed a screwdriver into his ear canals. And then he walked, bleeding badly into a room in the student union building where early gamers gathered and he just kept screaming, never again will I hear your petty grievances. Never again will I hear your petty grievances as the blood just poured down into his shoulders and then the police showed up and they shot him in the head 368 times. And he lived, but he was a vegetable and he'd become known as Swiss Cheesehead the rest of his shitty life. It's a fucking crazy story. It's never happened. No, he was just sad. But, uh, but everyone else uh, wasn't. Some of the players uh, felt very differently about Bronstein. They enjoyed their chaotic struggle over the town. One particularly enthusiastic player was Dave Arniston. Arneson, excuse me, no T, a student at the University of Minnesota. Uh, he later recalled his experience of the game, and, uh, and his name will come back up later. He's a big figure in the world of D&D. He said, as a local student leader, I tried to rally resistance to thwart a French attack. I ended up arrested by the Prussian general because I was too fanatical. Later on, this beloved nerd will be integral the team that will develop Dungeons and Dragons. Hail Dave, we Hail Dave Wesley and hail Dave Arneson. The original D&D? Dave and Dave? No. Uh, while Wesley's experiment had failed as a strategy game, it had triumphed as a role-playing game, even if he didn't see that at first. But within Daisy Wood, his sadness was uh, short-lived and he would uh, create more scenarios, including a game set during the Russian Civil War, another set during a Latin American coup. Local gamers in Minneapolis came to use the term Bronstein generically to describe this new genre of open-ended war games. Later the same year that Wesley organized Bronstein at the University of Minnesota, Gary motherfucking Gygax organized the first annual Gen Con, a convention for war gamers. It was held in the Horticultural Hall in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, which Gygax rented for 50 bucks. 
That's where the gen comes from, uh, Geneva. There were uh, 96 attendees, just enough to cover the costs. Gygax was introduced to the siege of Badenburg by Jeff Perrin, the owner of a hobby shop in Lake Geneva. Like Wesley, uh, Gygax loved the game, immediately set about modifying it. He expanded the rules from four pages to 16. The following year, 1969, Gygax and Perrin debut a new medieval war game in the magazine of the Castle and Crusade Society, calling it Chainmail. Oh, fuck yeah, bro. Fighting man, here we come. Fight, 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 fight. All I do is fight. And then I fight and fight and fight. Fight, 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 fight. You get it. Chainmail was the first high fantasy game of its kind. With elements Gygax drew from pulp science fiction and fantasy novels of the 1950s and 60s. Now, in addition to medieval units such as cavalry, footmen, and archers, players could also include units of creatures mainly drawn from Tolkien's Middle-earth. Hobbits, dwarves, elves, goblins, orcs, trolls, several varieties of dragons, elementals, balrogs, ents. All these things worked within a particular system. Like with the old style of war games, uh, there was only a limited amount left to chance. Uh, Even in a world with magic, everything operated on a logical basis so players could learn how to repeatedly play the game well. And many did. Immediately, people found the game to be a, a beautiful escape from the real world in a fantastical setting. Many of D&D's early players had come of age in the U.S. during a time of quite a bit of turbulence, right? Marked by the uh, horrors of the modern world. They'd grown up during World War II, heard and seen the mechanized horrors of the Holocaust, saw how the Cold War meant that a single push of a button might send the planet into nuclear winter. They'd also grown up, unlike people from previous generations, with a lot of available and detailed sci-fi and fantasy literature. The first fantasy literature magazine published in English was Weird Tales in 1923. We've heard about this before. Decade later, the father of the sword and uh, sword and sorcery subgenre that would heavily influence Dungeons and Dragons, Robert Howard, friend of H.P. Lovecraft, who we met in that suck, uh, conceptualizes Conan the Barbarian and writes 21 stories over the next few years. Later on, other authors will write more stories. Thanks largely to these Conan stories becoming more and more popular in the years following Howard's tragic death in 1936, when he sadly took his own life at the age of only 30. By 1950, this type of fantasy had found a large audience especially amongst teens and people in their 20s, thanks largely to J.R.R. Tolkien. Written in stages between 1937, when The Hobbit was published in 1949, uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, first published in 1954, became a fucking massive success and introduced many of the creatures to the world who would later show up in D&D. Uh, by the 1960s, The Lord of the Rings had become you know, so wildly popular, it would go on to sell over 150 million copies one of the most popular novels of all time. And with that popularity, more people were exposed to more of that genre, like the world of uh, Conan and other sword and sorcery publications. Uh, Many of them were exposed for the first time to a 1950s fantasy comic, a variation of Pootie and Juju called Pootie and Juju's Enchanted Forest. And the most popular issue of this hit series, Pootie and Juju's Enchanted Forest issue number six, Bing Bang Bap, published in March, 1957. The comic begins with Pootie walking in on Juju, conjuring an air elemental to help keep the cottage floor clean, not understanding how dangerous that was. And Pootie tried to shut it down. Yelling, zip it, Juju. And then Juju, not understanding what Pootie was talking about, right, gets annoyed and just yells back, oh, put it in your lunchbox, Shirley. As the elemental now shows up, begins completely destroying their cottage, trying to kill them. They spend the entire right issue mostly just uh, running and hiding from this entity. Uh, a lot of funny shenanigans. Uh, finally finding a sorcerer who agrees to banish the elemental in exchange for Pootie and Juju, bringing him milk and cookies, fresh baked, daily for a full year. Once the elemental is gone, Pootie and Juju have nothing left. 
As they look at the wreckage of their cottage, Pootie says, at least the wizard banished that baddie. And then Juju, holding the tattered remains of what was once Juju's favorite toy, cries, too little, too dinner, Pootie. And that's it, you know? <laughs> what an ending. What an episode. W- what entertainment. Something that that, uh, you know, that single issue influenced uh, the development of Dungeons and Dragons more than the Lord of the Rings. Others think Pootie and Juju was made up by me early in the history of Time Suck, and there's not a lot to it. And, you know, it de- definitely didn't exist when D&D was being developed. You know, it's a big world. There's a lot of beliefs out there, a lot of, uh, a lot of different beliefs. Uh, anyway, to many of the early chainmail players, people very familiar with all this fantasy literature, the state of modernity was not defined by knowledge and hope, but by alienation and uncertainty. Technology had not produced a utopian society, but horrifying weapons. And to escape, they turned to a time when battles were fought according to principles. At least, you know, when you romanticize it. Uh, honor, heroism, and with technology that was magical and fanciful. Characters worked together to accomplish their goals, not against each other, right? And good often triumphed. John, a gamer interviewed for an article about D&D that appeared in the magazine New West in 1980, would sum some of the sentiment up saying, ever since I was 10, I've wanted to drop out of this world. There are so many flaws. A lot of things are unfair. When I'm in my world, I control my own world order. I can picture it all, the groves and trees, the beauty. I can hear the wind. The world isn't like that. My beliefs, morals, sense of right and wrong are much stronger since playing D&D. Pretty, 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 pretty beautiful. Kind of sad. Kind of sad that you hate this world that much, but also, you know, there's some beauty there. So how did this fantasy world work? And what were the things that inspired it? Well, let's dive back into British author J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and Hobbit books. Nothing would influence D&D more than the works of Tolkien, in particular, the Lord of the Rings. Right? Lord of the Rings is an epic high fantasy novel set in Middle-earth intended to be Earth at some point in the distant past. The story began as a sequel to Tolkien's 1937 children's book, The Hobbit, but eventually developed into a much larger book work, not really, uh, not really intended for, for little kids. The title refers to the story's main antagonist, the Dark Lord Sauron, who in an earlier age created the one ring to rule the other rings of power given to men, dwarves, and elves in his campaign to conquer all of Middle-earth. From homely beginnings in the Shire, a hobbit land reminiscent of the English countryside, the story ranges across Middle-earth following the quest to destroy the One Ring, mainly through the eyes of the hobbits of Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin. When Lord of the Rings went into a pirated, much cheaper than the original publishing, uh, you know, hardback version, when it went to this cheaper paperback in 1965, millions of American readers now became aware of the book's existence and how it spoke to, the, to a young, disaffected generation who wanted to escape through fanciful adventures and feel like there was still good left in the world to fight for. Gary, one of the biggest nerds in the world of the 1960s, Gygax, will be one of these young people. He was 27 in 1965. The world of Dungeons and Dragons would take many things from the Lord of the Rings, including its fictional races, halflings, elves, half-elves, dwarfs, orcs, rangers, and more. Rangers being a class, not a, not a race. Uh, the resemblance was uh, even closer before the threat of copyright action from Tolkien Enterprises, prompting the name changes of Hobbit to Halfling, Ent to Trent, Balrog to Balor, etc., According to Dangerous Games, what the moral panic over role-playing games says about play, religion, and imagined worlds, the lawsuit was headed by Hollywood mogul Saul Zantz on behalf of his company, Middle Earth Enterprises. That's what, that's what separated Lord of the Rings and D&D a little bit. A little bit. Uh, the success of Lord of the Rings also prompted American publishers to start publishing new science fiction and fantasy, works that would find their way into Dungeons & Dragons. The D&D magic system, for example, in which wizards memorize spells that are used uh, up once cast and have to kind of re-memorize them for the following day, that was heavily influenced by the Dying Earth stories, written by Jack Vance. 
Other influences are too many to name, right? They span everything from the book of Genesis to former suck subject and Cthulhu creator H.P. Lovecraft to non-Western religious traditions. The prominence of original fantasy religions in D&D as opposed to adaptations of Christian saints and demons can be attributed largely to the influence of a philologist, don't get to say that word very often, named M.A.R. Barker. Barker was born in 1929 as Philip Barker, born just 30 minutes from where I sit and record in Spokane, Washington. And like me, grew up largely in rural Idaho. His next door neighbors were a Basque family for part of his childhood. And Barker developed an interest in philology in part because he was jealous that his neighbors could tell secrets in another language. Uh, Philology, by the way, is a branch of knowledge that deals with the structure, historical development, and relationships of a language or languages. Barker studied Indian languages in college. And then in 1951, the Smarty Pants received a Fulbright scholarship to do further research in southern India. During this trip, he converted to Islam and changed his name to Muhammad Ab al-Raham Barker. He later explained, I adopted Islam while I was over there for for purely theological reasons. Seemed like a more logical religion. He went on to receive a doctorate from Berkeley where he wrote his dissertation on Klamath, a vanishing Native American language from Southern Oregon and Northern California. In uh, 1972, he took a position at the University of Minnesota. And it was there that the scholar uh, went full nerd and became very interested in wargaming. Even before discovering wargaming, Barker had developed a fictional world uh, world for much of his life. Uh, his world was called uh, Tecumel, and he'd imagined an entire history, nations, and social structure for its inhabitants. Like Tolkien, he had used his expertise in philology to even construct new languages for this imaginary world. They went real fucking deep on all this. Where Tolkien was inspired by Celtic mythology and Anglo-Saxon literature, Barker drew on his experience in South Asia as well as the Malu of dark science fiction in the vein of Lovecraft. Uh, Tecumel is similar to Earth, but hotter, wetter, its climate resembling that of India rather than that of Europe. Millennia ago, it was terraformed by space-faring humans and their extraterrestrial allies. For a time, Tecumel was home to a utopian civilization which humans live side by side with creatures from other worlds. Then the world underwent a cataclysm, plunging the world into darkness. And while Tolkien shared his fantasy with the world through novels, Barker did so through a role-playing game. Barker sent a manuscript of all this to TSR, right? Uh, Tactical Studies Rules. Gary Gygax's new company, formed in 1973 for a new game called Empire of the Petal Throne, set in the world of Tecumel. Barker would self-publish this in 1974, the same year D&D came out, and then TSR would publish a proper box set of this game a a year later. Barker's fantasy was infinitely more vivid and rich than the campaign worlds that TSR had already produced. Dave Arneson later declared, as far as I'm concerned, Phil Barker's world of Tecumel is the most original and detailed fantasy world ever published. In 1975, TSR published Barker's game as a variation on D&D, right? Individual dungeon masters from the beginning could combine elements of various games into campaigns, make their own choices. And so very early on, Barker's game found its way into D&D's worlds and subsequent editions borrowed heavily from him, especially uh, from his created religions. Barker's religions featured numerous gods, elaborate rituals, human sacrifice, a lot of world building. He featured both gods of stability and gods of change. The latter included entities as the five-headed Lord of Worms, Master of the Undead, the Green-Eyed Lady of Sins. And they all have actual names that I'm not even going to try to uh, say. They're like uh, Cthulhu, right? Better in print than to be read aloud since they're uh, written in a language that's made up. Uh, Barker's fantasy religions were so detailed and convincing that eventually a supplement was produced called the Book of Even Bindings which describes the religions and demonology of Tecumel. Oh, this is so deep. Uh, uh, man, while Barker had once just uh, been another fan of TSR and Dungeons & Dragons, now he was actively influencing it. This collaborativeness was also something new to the world of games and role-playing, and people loved it. 
Must these spaces of limitless possibilities for imagining both the best and the worst of humans and fantasy creatures' tendencies wasn't as attractive to everyone, right? Various uh, parental groups, many of them religious, would blame D&D for corrupting the youth, making them live in a dangerous fantasy world, even introducing them to Satanism. Accusations like these would follow D&D for decades, even as the game became more popular and more beloved. Uh, People should have been more familiar with it to see that Maybe they were mistaken. These accusations still around, especially as uh, as we possibly head into a new era of satanic panic. Okay, now that all that is uh, set up, time to hop into today's Time Suck timeline. But first, while it has nothing to do, and we'll learn about Gary Gax, Gygax's life and that, and the formation of all this in more detail. First, while it has nothing to do with uh, Dungeons & Dragons, I wouldn't feel right not mentioning that Barker, who I just went over, who passed away in Minneapolis in 2012 at the age of 82, also randomly published an anti-Semitic novel under a pseudonym in 1991, The Serpent's Walk, published by National Vanguard Books, part of a neo-Nazi political organization. So not good. Uh, he moved to Minneapolis in 1972 to teach at the University of Minneapolis, or University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, where he chaired the Department of South Asian Studies, and then retired around the same time that he published this uh, Nazi book. So coincidence? Or pushed out of academia because he went a little cray-cray. Serpent's Walk features an alternate history where SS soldiers began an underground resistance after the end of, the, of World War II, with their descendants rising up a century later to take over the U.S. with their ta- with the tactics of their enemies, quote-unquote, building their economic muscle and buying into the opinion-forming media. The book cover, uh, the, excuse me, the back cover of the book states, the good guys win sometimes. Not always, of course. They lost big in the Second World War. That was a victory for communists, Democrats, and Jews, but everyone else lost. A century after the war, they are ready to challenge the Democrats and Jews for the hearts and minds of white Americans who have begun to have their fill of government-enforced multiculturalism and equality. Yeek! Very fucking cringy. And then Barker also went on to become an advocate for uh, Holocaust denial. So how fucking sad. His fans were devastated when all this just came out back uh, this, this March. So it seems to have gotten a little carried away with his imagination later in life and started to really see shit that wasn't there and form connections uh, where there weren't any and really tarnished his legacy. But again, none of that shit went into D&D. Just a sad example of how even really smart people can do shit that's really fucking stupid. It's a weird world, but you knew that. Now let's explore a different weird world, one where there is 0% Nazis, but a lot of fucking orcs and dragons and such, and quite a few fighting men in today's Time Suck timeline. Right after today's mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out? Sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P 
com slash timesuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thank you for continuing to support this show so we can have our sponsors. And now it's timeline time for real. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. The original Dungeons and Dragons, now often referred to as uh, OD&D, was a small box set of three booklets published in 1974. The company that created and owned the, the company, TSR Incorporated, was based in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, but long before it would become a product 
Uh, it was simply a concept being developed in the basement of the Gygax family home. So let's journey back in time a little bit to uh, get familiar with Gygax. Ernest Gary Gygax, born July 27th, 1938 in Chicago, Illinois. His father was a 44-year-old Swiss immigrant and Chicago Symphony Orchestra violinist, also named Ernest Gary Gygax. But the violin didn't pay the bills, and Ernest got a job as a suit salesman at Rothschild & Co. to make ends meet. Junior would be named after his father, of course, uh, but he was commonly known as Gary because his mother loved the actor Gary Cooper. Uh, Gary's mom, 31-year-old Almina Posey Burdick Gygax, was a maniac obsessed with wanting to fuck Gary Cooper. He, uh, Gary would file several restraining orders against her. She covered the family home in Gary Cooper wallpaper. She covered tables all over the house with magazines featuring Gary Cooper on the cover. Uh, she would only have sex with her husband if he pretended to be Gary Cooper. And being surrounded by all this Gary Cooper bullshit is what would push young Gary into a world of fantasy to escape it. No, I don't think Posey liked uh, Gary Cooper that much. Uh, she was a housewife, uh, now on her second marriage. She'd previously been married to Gary Cooper. No, I'll stop. Uh, no, I don't know who she's married to first. Sources don't say. I do know that she came from a prominent Lake Geneva, Wisconsin family and had two children from her previous marriage, Nancy and Hugh, 11 and nine years older than Gary, respectively. From his youngest days, Gary's mother had a special affection for him. He was the baby of the family, right? Reading him stories, playing with him, improving his vocabulary. As a young boy, Guy Gax lived with his family on Kenmore Avenue, close enough to Wrigley Field that he could hear the roar of the crowds watching the Cubs play. But the games that Gary loved were not uh, Major League Baseball games. They were card games like Pinnacle and chess. Uh, chess, obviously not a card game, but card games like Pinnacle and also games like chess where he, uh, he began to play these games when he was five. After a day of playing games, it was customary for his father to tuck him in with fantastic stories of giants and dragons, wise old wizards with magic rings. He's a good dad. And uh, young Gary was the apple of both his parents' eyes. At the age of seven, he became a member of a small group of uh, friends who called themselves the Kenmore Pirates. And apparently these Kenmore Pirates got into uh, quite a bit of trouble for kids that age. 1946, the Kenmore Pirates were involved in a little, little ruckus, a little fracas with another gang of young boys. The opposing gang were from the wealthier north side of Chicago. <laughs> I love, these are like tiny kids. I love this. Uh, this is real. This is the family lore. And they uh, outnumbered them by more than two to one. But that didn't stop little Gare Bear. He launched himself with these bullies as the other Kenmore Pirates did the same. And just as the fight seemed lost, the leader of the Pirates, Jerry Paul, beamed the other gang's leader in the fucking head with a cement rock and knocked him unconscious. And his gang carried him away. Gary was in bad shape that night when he came home, cut, bruised, clothes, torn up. And his parents took one look at him and decided something had to change. Yeah, I I bet. He's doing this at the age of seven? What the hell was he going to be doing at the age of 17? What's going on here? His father decided now to move the family to Gary's mother's family home in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, in between Chicago and Milwaukee where her family had settled in the early 19th century and where Gary's grandparents still lived. Really pretty town. Over a little, uh, over 8,000 full-time residents call Lake Geneva their home. It's a home. It's a resort town. Has been for a long time. In 1968, the late Hugh Hefner built his first Playboy resort in Lake Geneva. Since the late 19th century, Lake Geneva has been home to numerous lakefront mansions owned by wealthy Chicagoans as second homes, leading to it be, uh, leading it to be nicknamed the Newport of the West. Uh, Newport is in the wealthy seaside resort city of Newport, Rhode Island. Gary's maternal grandparents, Hugh and Grace Burdick, owned a towering six-bedroom green and white Victorian home with a generous porch and a chalet-like second-story balcony situated among similar homes at 925 Dodge Street. It was much better than a small cramped apartment the Gygaxes lived in in Chicago. Gary now had his own room, the first door on the left at the top of the stairs. Gary even had the, uh, the choice of his room. 
as Nancy, his teenage half-sister, had recently married, moved out, and given birth to a baby boy. So uh, Gary's the only baby boy in the house now. In this uh, new setting, Gygax soon makes friends with several of his peers, you know, neighbor kids, including Don Kay, later co-founder of TSR, and Mary Jo Powell, his future wife. Pretty adorable. And he will have quite the quaint, idyllic upbringing now. Powell kept up uh, so well with the neighborhood boys that Gary's father often teased her, pretending he thought she was a boy and expressing surprise when she would tell him otherwise. During his childhood and teen years, Gary developed a love of games and an appreciation for fantasy and science fiction literature, as well as playing make-believe. At the age of 10, he and his friends played the sort of make-believe games that eventually came to be called live-action role-playing games, with one of them acting as a referee. His dad introduced him to science fiction and fantasy pulp novels that would inspire the settings for his role plays, and pretty soon Gary was hooked on all this shit. He started developing uh, miniature war games in 1953 with his uh, buddy Don. As teens, they designed their own rules for toy soldiers, had a large collection of figurines, even used lady fingers or small firecrackers to simulate explosions. I mean, they got into this. Gary loved sci-fi and fantasy and became enamored with writers like Robert Howard, Jack Vance, Fritz Lieber, Lovecraft, Burroughs. Uh, What he was not enamored with was school. He was a mediocre student. And in 1956, he dropped out of high school during his junior year and joined the Marines. But after being diagnosed with walking pneumonia, I returned home, uh, was sent back home to live with his mom who had recently lost her husband, Gary's dad. Gary would now commute to a job as a shipping clerk with Kemper Insurance Co. in Chicago. About an hour drive each way, plenty of time to daydream about all sorts of fantastical shit. Also around this time, a friend introduced him to Avalon Hill's new war game, Gettysburg, that game I mentioned earlier. Gettysburg was originally published in 1958, the first board war game ever based on a historical battle. Avalon Hill had decided to make it because of the 100-year anniversary of the Civil War, and it would be groundbreaking. Introducing concepts and gaming that would influence creators for years to come. In traditional war games, two players control armies, each acting as a sort of abstract commander. Uh, As in an actual battle, each game ends with a winner and a loser. But in Gettysburg, war gamers began to experiment with scenarios that involved numerous factions, which might or might not be adversarial towards one another. These experiments in war gaming would later require an impartial referee to mediate between players, aka a, a dungeon master, the DM. Gettysburg also innovated the combat results table, which determined the outcome of a clash between individual units in a larger battle. In a combat results table, the attacker and defender typically compare the relative strengths of the units involved in the clash and reduce these numbers to a ratio, which corresponds to a column on a table. Right, For example, two to one if the attacker, uh, attacker is twice as strong as the defender. Less often, the columns may be based on the difference between the combatant strengths rather than the ratio. For example, three if an attacker with a strength of five attacks a defender with a strength of two, right? Five minus two, three. Uh, dice roll is then made using one or more die or dice. That one or more die is correct. Sorry, I always forget that die is the singular. And the resulting number is then cross-referenced to the table to determine the winner and loser, the results of an individual clash. Thus, Gettysburg used a format that would be essential to D&D later. A combination of chance from the dice rolls and statistics based on player strengths stronger your character, the more likely they are to win in battle, but always a small element of chance, right? Always a small chance that can work for you or against you. And that keeps shit interesting. Adds so much emotion. You can be saved by a miraculous roll or you can be fucked by random chance, which is just how life works, right? You can eat like shit, never exercise, get really lucky, stay relatively healthy until the age of 95 and then die peacefully in your sleep. The universe rolled an incredible roll for you. Or you can eat really well, work out all the time, keep yourself in phenomenal shape, take all the supplements, and then randomly stroke out at the age of 42. 
Probably won't. Your lifestyle has increased the odds of you living long, but in the end, you just never know. There's always a little bit of chance out there. Universe just might fucking snake eye you. Uh, Gary became obsessed with Gettysburg, often playing marathon sessions once or more a week. Then when the game was uh, re-released in 1961 with brand new hex mapping sheets, sheets that divided the board into hexagons, hexagons, Gary ordered some to begin designing his own games. Around the time that he discovered Gettysburg, Gary would also make a different kind of discovery. Uh, one that I, I prefer. I don't know if he did or not. Uh, his mom reintroduced him to Mary Jo Powell. Right? Mary Jo, his little childhood friend, had left Lake Geneva as a kid. Now just returned, and she looked very different. No one was confusing her with the boys now. She had these things, uh, oh, what do they call these things on her chest? Uh, uh, boobs. She had boobs. Glorious memories and hips. Hail Lucifina. Uh, she really was quite beautiful looking at pictures. Uh, dude was punching way out of his weight class with this uh, neighbor buddy. And she didn't really care that he played his war games. Not at first. It'll, it'll wear on her in time, but not yet. Uh, Gary hit the fucking lottery, was immediately smitten, soon asked her to marry him even though he was just 19. Couldn't I find a source anywhere that definitively lists Mary Jo's age, but based on them being childhood friends, right? I, I have to assume she was around 19 herself when they got married. Uh, the two would be married September 14th, 1958. And it caused some friction with Gary's buddy, Don, his best friend, also smitten with Mary Jo. Everybody was smitten with Mary Jo. This reminds me so much of Stranger Things in various ways. Don was so hurt, uh, he chose Gary over him. He wouldn't attend the wedding. And then they would reconcile later. The young couple then moved to Chicago where Gary continued working as a shipping clerk at Kemper Insurance, also found a job for Mary Jo there, but then the company fired her when she became pregnant with her first child, back when that was sadly a thing that companies did all the time. While working, Gary also took anthropology classes at the University of Chicago on top of helping to raise a family, right? Studying cultures to help him build some new worlds later. And he, of course, found time to keep playing his war games. A lot of war games. He played so much that Mary Jo, when she was pregnant with her second child, thought he was having an affair. Uh, went to a, a friend's house to confront him, went down into the basement and then discovered he had a bunch of friends, right? Eating snacks, a bunch of fucking nerd dudes sitting around a map covered table where they'd been playing for hours. Love it. 1962, Gary, just 22, now gets a job as an insurance underwriter at Fireman's Fund Insurance Company. His family's quickly continuing to grow. Uh, after the birth of his third child, he decides to move the family back to Lake Geneva where life's uh, a little more manageable. Aside from a few brief stints elsewhere, this will be his home for the rest of his life. By 1966, Gary is now, uh, I mean, manageable with head family and stuff. Uh, by 1966, Gary now uh, is especially active in the war game hobby world and is getting published, albeit to small circulation uh, you know, outlets, writing many magazine articles on the subject of war game, war gaming. Uh, now also learns about H.G. Wells' Little Wars book for playing miniature military war games and is able to understand it perfectly since he's older than 12 and has a penis. Also reads Fletcher Pratt's Naval War Game book one of the most successful naval war games of the 20th century, first published in 1940. Also busy figuring out how to generate random numbers, not only with six-sided dice, but with dice of all shapes and numbers of faces. He discovered some extra-sided dice in a school supply catalog, some tools they used for math exercises. Uh, while 20-sided die in particular are now pretty much exclusively associated with D&D, the earliest one ever found actually dates all the way back to 300 BCE, roughly around the time of Ptolemy uh, I, uh, Soder, Ptolemy Soder, companion chronicler, Alexander the Great, uh, began who, who began the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt. Uh, the die found uh, are in remarkable condition despite the passage of time and display clear numerals written in Greek. Second oldest die 20 on record traced back to Rome, circa 100 CE. I did not, I was surprised by that too. 1967, Gygax co-founded the International Federation of Warmers, 
uh, IFW with Bill Spear and Scott Duncan, the IFW grew uh, rapidly, uh, particularly by assimilating several pre-existing wargaming clubs. I think it's, I guess maybe it is warmer. And uh, uh, wars, maybe. I think I auto, uh, auto spell, whatever the fuck it's called. <laughs> Autocorrect, fix that. But mess it up. And aimed to promote interest in war games of all periods. And provided a forum for war gamers via its newsletters and societies, which enabled them to form local groups and share rules. 1967, Gygax organized a 20-person gaming meet in the basement of his home. This event would later be referred to as Gen Con Zero. 1968, Gygax rented Lake Geneva's vine-covered horticultural hall for 50 bucks, equivalent to about $400 now, as I mentioned earlier, to hold that first Lake Geneva convention, also known as I mentioned, Gen Con for short. Still going. Uh, It's been held in Indianapolis now since 2003, been averaging over 50,000 attendees a year, spread out over four days. Uh, it's the largest tabletop game convention in North America by both attendance and number of events. And it would mostly be held in Lake Geneva until outgrowing the capacity of the venues there following 1977. It would stay in Wisconsin after that, primarily Milwaukee, until moving to Indy in 2003. And anyway, Gygax met Dave Arneson, the future co-creator of D&D, at the second Gen Con in Lake Geneva in August of 1969. Together with Don Kay, Mike Reese, and Leon Tucker, Gygax created a military miniature society called Lake Geneva Tactical Studies Association the following year in 1970 with its first headquarters in Gygax's basement. And all these big lofty names, a lot of these groups would fade after a few years. And, uh, you know, they had like a handful of members. Late in October of 1970, Gygax loses his job at the insurance company after almost nine years. Unemployed, now with a family of five kids, Ernest, uh, Ernie, uh, Lucian, uh, aka Luke, Heidi, Cindy, and Elise. He tries to use his enthusiasm for games to make a living by designing board games for commercial sale. He fucking goes for it. Now or never. Hail Nimrod. But in 1971, he'll only make 882 bucks, equivalent to less than $6,000 in 2021 terms. As uh, the, the calculation happened to use for this. Uh, nowhere near enough to support a large family. So now, so fucking random. He begins cobbling shoes in his basement which actually provides him with a steady income and gives him more time for pursuing his interest in game development. Shoes in the base. No idea where that came from. It does not say in sources. That is such an odd choice to me. I just never would have guessed that. So random. Like if you'd asked me, Gary Gygax did what in 1971 to make extra money to support his family after losing his job? And if you gave me unlimited guesses, I don't think I would guess cobbling shoes in his basement in the first probably thousand or even 5,000 tries. I would guess all kinds of crazy shit before basement shoe cobbling. Uh, uh, kite traffic control supervisor. No. Okay. Uh, pet massager. No. Uh, dominatrix. Uh, uh, small monkey breeder. Uh, large monkey breeder. Uh, wizard staff sander. Wizard staff refurbisher. Custom, customer service agent at a boomerang factory. What the fuck did he do? Uh, 1971, Gary began doing some editing work. Now he's uh, taking a little time away from basement shoe cobbling to work for Guidon Games, which published war games out of Evanston, Indiana. Gary would transition from editing to producing the board games Alexander the Great and Dunkirk, the Battle of France. And now he felt it was his time to make his own war game. 1971, Gary would publish Chainmail, a miniature war game that simulated medieval-era tactical combat, which he'd originally co-written with local Lake Geneva hobby shop owner Jeff Perrin. So let's fucking go! Fight! 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 I'm liking this episode so far. No, not dark and gritty like we normally do here. Pretty nerdy, but also adorable. I'm into it. We'll go dark again next week, but I'm enjoying this. Uh, the Chainmail medieval miniature rules were originally published in the Castle and Crusade Society's fanzine 
the doomsday book. <laughs> and this might be my favorite part of this episode, right? This, this sounds pretty cool. The Castle and Crusade Society's fanzine. The, actually, it's not the doomsday. It's the domesday. All these fucking weird vari- variations. The domesday book where my mind wants to like transition to a more familiar word. And I think about 20 people read this domesday book. And I'm not just, uh, you know what? I'm, I'm so sorry. I, uh, I, these little things that autocorrect didn't catch and my brain didn't catch until, of course, I recorded the episode. It is the Doomsday book. I was like, Doomsday? That is the Doomsday book. And, uh, and I think about 20 people read it and not talking shit. To say that circulation was small for this thing is such an understatement. The first two Doomsday book issues published in 1970 are exactly one page each. A, a page. Not even like the backside of the page. So not exactly books. Uh, not even pamphlets. I think flyer, like the kind of shit you might find under your windshield instead of in a bookstore is more appropriate. And they did not print many of these pages. Uh, as of the third doomsday book, the membership had increased to nine people, nine, not 90, not 900 or 9,000, nine. Basically odds are that at whatever holiday get together you went to this past holiday season, if you would have brought a few hundred words of whatever you decided to write about that you printed on a sheet of paper at home, and then you handed that sheet of paper to some cousins and aunts and uncles and family friends before they dug into some fucking, you know, cheesy potatoes with the cornflakes on top or some sugar cookies, you would have had a more successful publishing history than the early days of the Doomsday Book. Talk about humble beginnings. Uh, Guidon Games now hired Gygax. I imagine they never paid him much, you know, uh, in this this early period. He and Mary Jo had to have been scraping by with some family help, maybe doing a lot of late night shoe cobbling or something to keep their five kids fed. Uh, to produce a war gaming with miniature series of games and a new edition of Chainmail was the first book in the series. The first edition of Chainmail included a fantasy supplement to the rules. This uh, comprised a system for warriors, fighting men, wizards, various monsters of non-human races drawn from the works of Tolkien and other sources. For a small publisher like Guidon Games, Chainmail was a, was a pretty big success. They sold 100 copies a month. And now Gary starts working on all kinds of other games. He collaborates on Tractics with Mike Reese and Leon Tucker. And his uh, contribution began uh, being the change to a 20-sided spinner or a coffee can with 20 numbered poker chips, eventually transitioning to 20-sided die to decide combat resolutions instead of the standard six-sided die. Also collaborate with Dave Arneson on the Napoleonic naval war game, Don't Give Up the Ship. Uh, in the fall of 1972, around late November, Dave Arneson and his friend uh, Dave McGarry, inventor of the Dungeon board game, traveled to Lake Geneva to showcase their respective games to Gary was now representative of guide on games and Gary saw potential in both games, but especially was excited by Arneson's role-playing game. Gary and Arneson uh, immediately started to collaborate on creating what they first just called the fantasy game, the role-playing game that would evolve into dungeons and dragons. Uh, initially, there were only three types of characters, right? That players could role-play as we talked about a fighting man, magic user, and clerics. These, uh, this religious class. The game also included an experience, uh, an experience system from Arneson's Blackmore campaign, which characters could level up after successful adventures, aka quests, or a series of quests, a campaign. There was no way to win the game. The continual development of characters became the closest thing the game had to any sort of objective. Just two weeks after the initial meeting, Gary had produced a 50-page set of rules, 50 pages, and was ready to try it on his two oldest kids, Ernie and Elise, in a setting he called Greyhawk. This group of players rapidly expanded to include Don Kay, Rob Kuntz, uh, or Kuntz, <laughs> probably not Kuntz, it was Rob Kuntz, uh, Rob Kuntz, and eventually larger circle. It was Guy Gax who decided on a name. He wanted to continue a pattern of paired nouns already used in the Castle and Crusade Society and Cavaliers and Roundheads. 
Oh boy. These lengthy terms. He drew up uh, two columns of, or titles. Drew up two columns of words that included men, magic, monsters, treasure, underworld, wilderness, castles, dragons, dungeons, giants, labyrinths, mazes, sorcery, spells, swords, trolls, and so on. Then he ran various combinations of words, and he ended up deciding on dungeons and dragons because the alliteration pleased his then two-year-old daughter, Cindy. That is adorable. Gary also sent the 50 pages of rules to his wargaming contacts, asked them to playtest this new game. Gary and Arneson would continue to trade notes about their respective campaigns, seeing what worked, what didn't. Despite their partnership, it was Gary who had final say. The last draft would include details that weren't ever vetted by Dave Arneson. Based on the feedback he received, Gygax now created a 150-page revision of the rules by mid-1973. You gotta be dedicated to play this. Uh, Several aspects of the system governing magic in the game were inspired by the dying Earth stories of fantasy author Jack Vance. Right. Noticeably, as I went over before, that fact that magic users, you know, would forget their spells and have to relearn the next uh, day. He based systems of magic and settings on all kinds of authors, many of whom he'd first been introduced uh, to in his childhood. And finally, he was ready to pitch this game. Gary asked Guidon Games to publish it, and they told him to suck their dicks. And he was like, what? Excuse me? And then they just said it slower. Suck our dicks, Gary. Uh, They didn't, of course, say that, but they did turn him down. Uh, the massive three-volume rule set in a labeled box was beyond the scope of that small publisher. It was just too many pages. So then Gary attempts to pitch the game to Avalon Hill, but the largest company in wargaming does not understand his new concept of role-playing, and they turn down his offer. They say it even slower. Suck our dicks, Gary. Now, he could have given up now. A lot of people would have, but he didn't. No one in the small gaming world had any interest in publishing the first edition of Dungeons & Dragons. They didn't understand it. So Gary, again with five kids and very little cash, bets on himself and fucking goes for it. Hail Nimrod. He takes a big risk, but he takes a calculated risk. Gary was confident his game would be popular because he had product tested it extensively. By 1974, Gary's Greyhawk group, which had started off with himself, right? Ernie Gygax, Don Kay. Uh, sorry, was it, yes, why do I have to give his name there? Oh, no, his son, uh, Rob, Rob Kuntz, uh, Terry Kuntz. It had grown to over 20 people with Rob Kuntz becoming the co-dungeon master so that each of them could referee groups to, uh, of only a dozen players. And these groups fucking loved it. How cool to think there are very likely a, a bunch of these people still around today, right? They were the first, the first D&D players, the first dungeon masters. Now let's back up just a little bit. 1973, Gary leaves Guide on Games that October, and he founded Tactical Studies Rules Incorporated, later known as TSR, Inc., with his old buddy, Don Kay. The two men each invested a thousand bucks in the venture. Kay had to borrow his share on his fucking life insurance policy to print the first thousand copies of Dungeons & Dragons, the first box set, which were assembled in Kay's dining room. Gary and Don tried to raise additional money for D&D by immediately publishing a set of war game, war game rules called Cavaliers and Roundheads, but sales were poor. Then when the printing costs for the 1,000 copies of D&D rose from 2,000 to 2,500, they didn't have enough capital to publish it. Gary just did not have another $500 to spare. That's the equivalent of about 3,000 bucks today. And I wonder how often he would later think about how he should have tried to do anything he could to figure out how to borrow that money from somebody who didn't want to be an investor in his company because what he will do instead will lead to so much pain later on and the loss of so much future revenue. Worried that other playtesters and war gamers now familiar with Gary's rules would bring a similar product to the market first, the two accepted an offer in December of 1973 by game-playing acquaintance Brian Bloom for him to invest 2000 into TSR to become an equal one-third partner. Best investment of Brian's life, worst business move in a sense in Gary's life. But at the time, it seemed like a perfect move. 
Bloom's investment finally brings the financing that enables them to publish D&D. The first commercial version of D&D would be released in January of 1974 as a box set put together in a Gary's basement now. Uh, Gary's basement and also Don's, uh, you know, dining room with a very limited production budget of only $2,000 with only exactly 100 budgeted for artwork. It was amateurish in production and assumed the player was familiar with wargaming. The box also contained a list of equipment, a lot of equipment that was not included, but necessary to play the game, which is absurd. Uh, it said Dungeons and Dragons, you have it. Outdoor survival, a game available from the Avalon Hill company used to play travel across the wilderness. Dice, the following different kinds of dice are available. You don't get them, but they're available from TSR. One pair, four-sided die, dice. Uh, one pair, 20-sided dice. One pair, eight-sided, actually it should say die, but this is the way they wrote it. One pair, 12-sided die. Four to 20 pairs, six-sided die. Chainmail miniature rules available from TSR Hobbies. Other supplies. One three-ring notebook for the referee in each player. Graph paper. Six lines per inch is best. Sheet protectors, the heaviest possible. Three-ring lined paper. Drafting equipment and colored pencils. Scratch paper and pencils. Imagination. One patient referee. I mean, the last couple are just pretty cute there, but I, I laughed out loud so hard when I first came across this info because that's so, that's so ridiculous. Like, can you imagine buying a game today? Or even better, getting one as a gift. And then you open it up to play and realize you need to buy about 10 other things to actually play the game. It's, it's like opening up a fucking Monopoly box and inside there's a, uh, a rule book and the community chess cards and like the top hat. And that's it. And then just a sheet of paper telling you where you can go to, to buy the board, uh, the chance cards, the fake cash, the die, right? The dice, the, the houses, the hotels, the other figurines. You buy a $20 game and immediately read about how you have to buy uh, $80 worth of extra shit to actually play it. As you can imagine, the first edition was not a, a monumental success, but it was successful enough to push things forward. In addition to not having so much shit necessary for gameplay, by all accounts, the game was hopelessly confusing for anyone who did not already have a detailed knowledge of wargaming. There was also no money for marketing. They had to advertise the game by word of mouth. It took 11 months to sell the first 1,000 copies, but they sold it, right? Despite these problems, the core idea, while rough, was so damn good for hardcore gamers that the game became popular in that, in that you know, world, Mimeographed copies of D&D, uh, mimeographs being like a, like old-fashioned coffee machines, basically, began circulating around college campuses, right? New, new versions of the game. Gygax began to receive letters and, and he receives phone calls, sometimes late at night, asking for clarifications about the rules. I love that his fucking home phone number is accessible to a lot of people playing this game. Uh, the game also became popular in the military, the cultural birthplace of wargaming, and American servicemen spread D&D to Europe. Soon the British company, Games Workshop, became D&D's first European importer. After an initial slow start, it grew quickly in popularity. Roughly 1,000 copies of the game, right, sold in the first year, followed by 3,000 the next year in 1975, and many more in subsequent following years. Uh, in 2018, a first printing of the box set in near-mint condition sold at auction for more than $20,000. Uh, I bet that thing would go for more than 30000 today. Uh, despite the first 1,000 copies selling out, you know, that first year, an early tragedy was looming. It could have crushed things. At the end of 1974, the future was looking bright, right? For Gygax and Kay, both only 36, longtime friends. However, in January of 1975, Kay unexpectedly dies of a heart attack. So young to die of a heart attack. That is terrifying. And he had not made any specific provision in his will regarding his one-third share of the company, simply leaving his entire state to his wife, Donna. Right? And this sucks because now two of the three investing partners in D&D don't know fuck all about Gary's game. Although she had worked briefly for TSR as an accountant, she had not shared her husband's enthusiasm for gaming at all. Didn't like it, in fact. Made it clear she would not be having anything to do with managing the company. 
Not only had Gary lost a friend and a business partner and a collaborator, he'd had all that replaced with someone who didn't give a fuck about his new baby that he had dumped all his family's money into. Uh, Gary will later describe Donna as less than personable. Feels like a diplomatic way of saying she was a bitch. Uh, he added, after Don died, she dumped all the tactical studies rules materials off on my front porch. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Would have been impossible to manage a business with her involved as a partner. Yee. Uh, after Kay's death, TSR was forced to relocate from uh, being spread between the two homes to uh, all in Gary's basement. In July of 1975, Guy Gax and Bloom reorganized the company from a uh, partnership to a corporation called TSR Hobbies. Guy Gax owns 150 shares. Bloom owns the other 100 shares. Both have the option to buy up to 700 shares additionally at any time in the future. Uh, but TSR Hobbies has nothing to publish. D&D is still owned by the three-way partnership of TSR, and neither Gygax nor Bloom have the money to buy out the shares owned by Kay's wife. Bloom now persuades a reluctant Gygax to allow his father, Melvin Bloom, to buy Donna's shares, and those are converted to 200 shares in TSR Hobbies. It's all getting convoluted. In addition, Brian buys another 140 shares, and this fucks Gare Bear because these purchases reduce Gygax from the major- majority shareholder in control of his company to a minority shareholder. He effectively, effectively becomes the Bloom's employee, uh, an employee of the company that he fucking founded, a company making money off the game he co-created with Dave Arneson. Ain't that a bitch? Right? This hurts me. I would not love being a minority shareholder in Bad Magic Productions. <laughs> that thought makes me sick to my stomach. Right? Just burning the midnight oil to give uh, most of the money to some randoms who don't even fucking care about it. Who just threw some investment money at it. People who could technically kick me out and replace me at any point. Uh, nevertheless, Gygax keeps working on all this. He loves it. He uh, goes on to write some supplements for the original D&D game. Creates a magazine called The Strategic Review. Becomes its editor. Then changes that magazine to the fantasy periodical The Dragon. Which debuts in June of 1976. Also in 76, TSR moves out of Gygax's house into its first professional home. Known as the Dungeon Hobby Shop. Sounds kind of like the Suck Dungeon. Um, and I don't think I knew about that. I like that little, uh, association, uh, D and D co-creator Dave Arneson now hired as part of the creative staff, but was let go after only 10 months. Guy Gax and Arneson have some, uh, had some creative differences over D and D, but as the co-creator of uh, D and D Arneson entitled to lucrative royalties. So now Guy Gax, uh, minority shareholder in the company he built continues to build and has to give another big cut of future royalties on new additions. He develops to someone he's no longer working with. So trying to avoid some of this mess, Gygax makes some minor changes and begins calling some new products Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, AD&D. TSR continues to describe all of its new products as advanced in order to avoid uh, continuing to pay royalties to Arneson for these future versions. I had no idea that was the real motivation to go from D&D to AD&D. But then Arneson will sue TSR on five separate occasions going forward to get his royalties. So much drama. Early 1977, TSR creates the first uh, element of a true uh, of a two pronged strategy that will divide D and D for uh, about two decades. A Dungeons and Dragons basic set box edition was introduced that cleaned up the presentation of the essential rules, made the system understandable to the general public, and was sold in a package that could be stocked in toy stores. Uh, later 1977, the first part of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons AD and D was published which brought together the various published rules, options, and corrections, then expanded them into a definitive unified game for hobbyist gamers. TSR marketed these two systems as an introductory game for new players and then a more complex game for experienced players. The basic set directed players who exhausted the possibilities of that game to switch to AD&D. As a result of this parallel development, the basic game included many rules and concepts which contradicted 
comparable ones in AD&D. Uh, John Eric Holmes, the editor of the basic game, preferred a lighter tone with more room for personal improvisation. AD&D, on the other hand, was designed to create a tighter, more structured game system than the loose framework of the original game. Between 77 and 79, three hardcover rulebooks, commonly referred to as the core rulebooks, were released. The Player's Handbook, as I mentioned earlier, the Dungeon Master's Guide, and the Monster Manual. The 1977 supplement, Eldric Wizardry, introduced further religious elements into the game. In addition to a new druid character class, this supplement introduced demons for the first time. And uh, real demons, which dramatically increased the price of the game. You know, getting to go on a campaign on a campaign, excuse me, against the actual Valak, well, that's going to set you back about 10 grand. You know, very hard to conjure and trap inside of a box set. And then you can only play uh, with Valak for one campaign, right? You're going to fight him and you're either going to either get possessed uh, and he fucking destroys you or you're going to send him back to hell and get so much fucking experience points, right? You're going to level up at least three levels. So kind of a risk worth taking, in my opinion. Uh, for real now, rules were provided for a demon prince named Orcus. The name of a Roman god of death referenced in Virgil's Aeneid. Another demon prince is named the Demogorgon. Might sound familiar. That's a name that appears in several early modern and romantic narratives and in the hit Netflix series Stranger Things. Uh, did you know that name actually comes from an ancient copywriter completely misreading something? I love that. Art historian uh, Jean Sesnick once said that Demogorgon is a grammatical error. Become God. Also in 1977, TSR is sued by someone uh, uh, else now, a Hollywood mogul, Saul Zantz, showbiz, uh, who had acquired certain rights to Tolkien's works the year before. Zantz claimed the terms such as dragon, orc, and elf were all protected and demanded a million dollars in damages. TSR settles out of court uh, and D&D creatures that were clearly derivative of Tolkien, such as hobbits, ents, and balrogs, are renamed halflings, treants, baller, uh, bl- I can't. My tongue is dying. And uh, baller demons. And get the fuck out of here with dragons. Tolkien didn't come up with that. Uh, Saul Zance was maybe a huge fucking asshole. He sued John Fogarty from Creedence Clearwater Revival, claiming John plagiarized himself after Saul owned the rights to some of John's earlier recordings. Uh, he lost this and several other similarly shitty lawsuits. Excuse me. Throughout his career, he was a very wealthy man who seemed to use his money to bully people. Uh, I do get what he did here with TSR. I understand why he didn't just let a growing gaming company rip off a lot of Tolkien creatures, but he also uh, once forced a small pub called The Hobbit in Southampton, England to change his name right after he acquired the rights to Tolkien's works. Little pub had been known as The Hobbit for two decades. They weren't franchising out, weren't expanding. They just, they just liked The Hobbit. Uh, by March 1979, despite having to change around a bunch of, uh, change around a bunch of monster names, TSR is now selling 7,000 copies of the D&D basic set each month to an estimated 300,000 players, you know, buying other supplements and stuff. A few months later, July 11th, 1979, TSR gets some press that will start to plant the seed in a lot of people's minds that this game is evil. Now we get a little less uh, nerdy, a little more mainstream in the suck, a little more interesting probably for many. The LA Times has published an article called Simply Dungeons and Dragons. While the article was not intended as an attack on D&D, it described children losing interest in ordinary activities, suffering from depression after their characters die, and hoping for spells that will bring back the dead. It also had unusual sexual references, noting that monsters may spare characters with high charisma so that they can impose their romantic or sexual wills upon them, and that one player's character is a slightly gay cleric. All right, weird. Uh, Significantly, the article explains that the player who is the dungeon master functions as a cross between God and a psychologist, analyzing players' characters' abilities and giving each as much challenge as tolerable. At his whim, the dungeon master can easily have players killed off or just as easily allow them to advance with little difficulty. 
Just a month later, the public would be led to believe that the prediction had literally come true about, uh, you know, uh, kind of the stuff noted in this article. So here we fucking go. Cue some satanic panic and the uh, same type of fear that was around back during the Salem witch trials. On August 15th, 1970, Michigan State University student James Dallas Egbert III allegedly disappeared into the school's steam tunnels while playing a live action version of D&D. He was last seen in the tunnels in the center of a pentagram where a dark entity turned into a black mist swirled its way into his mouth, inside of his body. His eyes now went totally black. Then he levitated several feet into the air and screamed, I will end all light. I will cover the world in absolute horror and darkness. I do as you command, Satan, my lord. No, JK, he didn't say that. Uh, he was 16, uh, was allegedly a child prodigy. He had a high IQ, was said to have been repairing computers for the Air Force at the age of 12. Following his disappearance, a note was found in his dorm room that read simply, to whom it may concern, should my body be found, I wish to be cremated. His parents, James and Anna Egbert, offered a $5,000 reward for any info leading to his recovery. On August 22nd, Dallas's uncle hires private investigator William Deer, Bill Deer, not a fan of this guy, former Florida Highway Patrolman and huge fucking tool, as you're about to find out. Uh, Deer honed in on Dallas's interest in D&D and constructed a highly imaginative scenario in which Dallas had become the victim of this fantasy world. Uh, Deer arrived at the MSU campus with a five-man team of investigators. One of the first clues discovered by Deer was a corkboard in James's room. Nothing was affixed to the board except for 38 white and blue pushpins and thumbtacks. Most of the pins were in an apparently random pattern, but some had been arranged into a rectangular shape that kind of, sort of, not really vaguely resembled a uh, handgun. Uh, Deer became obsessed with the significance of this corkboard and was certain it had some sort of code that would lead to Dallas's whereabouts. Uh, he had members of his team fly over MSU in a plane to see if the buildings resembled the shape formed by the pushpins. Photos of the corkboard were sent to TSR for analysis. Why sent to TSR? Because Deer believed that James had been playing Dungeons and Dragons a lot in an elaborate network of steam tunnels beneath the campus. And the network of steam tunnels did actually exist. Uh, according to many there at the time, students would explore the tunnels or even use them to move between buildings on cold days. And sometimes groups of students would organize live action fantasy role-playing games in these tunnels, which to me actually sounds pretty fucking badass. I mean, I wish I had access to a big set of tunnels like that. It really put me in the mood to uh, work on Scared to Death. Uh, while conducting its own exploration of the steam tunnels, Deer's team found a graffiti that read, This Way to Middle Earth, and even a sort of tableau of a mannequin seated at a table that had been built in an empty chamber. I like it. I like how weird it is. Well, Deer learned of James's interest in D&D, and hypothesized that he had disappeared into the steam tunnels to play a new and more immersive form of D&D, and then never returned. And he still might be somewhere in the tunnels still alive. James, he suggested, was undergoing, undergoing some kind of psychotic break, in which he'd become so engrossed in his role that his identity as a college student had been completely forgotten. And he's pulling all of this out of his ass, by the way. Uh, he would later explain in his memoir, James might actually have begun to live this game, not just to play it. Dungeons and Dragons could have absorbed him so much that his mind had slipped through the fragile barrier between reality and fantasy. Is it that fragile? And he no longer existed in the world we inhabit. At one point, he even suggested that a mysterious dungeon master might have warped Alice's mind and was now using him as, a, as bait to lure investigators into his mad game. All right, buddy, calm the fuck down. Uh, there is a logic to what uh, he's saying about getting lost in the game somewhat, but now he's acting like the dungeon master is some kind of fucking comic book supervillain. Or some kind of actual sorcerer, right? Uh, this is real life, not a comic book, not a movie. 
Uh, Dear would even launch a crackpot investigation by offering a student 50 bucks to visit him at his motel and play a game of D&D. <laughs> he added in his memoir, $60 if the game is a good one. The student did show up with a friend. Uh, the three of them played a short game with one dungeon master, two players. Even though the game only lasted a little while, you know, just like no more than a couple hours because the DM got frustrated with the two players constantly stealing from each other <laughs> instead of cooperating. Uh, Deer was convinced he had gotten insight into James's psyche. Later, while describing his exploration of the tunnels, Deer remarked, being the tunnel was similar to that game of Dungeons and Dragons I had played in my motel room. For me, that game had been exciting enough because my imagination is a good one. But maybe if I had played the game more, I would have wanted more. These tunnels were practically guaranteed to set your imagination racing. But you didn't need an imagination down here. Uh, regardless of how crackpot, crackpot this whole investigation was, his story caught fire. Newspapers across the country ran headlines such as Game Cultist Still Missing. Dungeons and Dragons cult may lead to missing boy. And fantasy turned real life may have killed student. Right? It's a deadly cult now. Cult, cult, cult. Same people who think Dungeons and Dragons is a cult, I feel like, are the people who think rock and roll is influenced by the devil. And the people who burn books. Right? It's just just scared, paranoid. Uh, It's kind of sad people who cause so much unnecessary harm and pain and chaos by refusing just to get a little bit out of their own ill-informed way and improve themselves and their minds. You know, find out what they're talking about. Like, learn a little bit about it. You know, to me, they're, they're, they're the uh, a version of the kind of person who hates foreigners, but has never traveled. Doesn't meet any. Like, when you're afraid of something you don't understand, I don't know, maybe try to understand it. Instead of just demonizing it and avoiding it. I have to remind myself of this sometimes. Uh, interestingly, while James did have an interest in D&D, he had never actually participated in any games at Michigan State University. Right? Like, he was, like, curious about it. Like, a lot of people never played. He did, however, have a large number of social, mental, and emotional problems before his disappearance. James felt uh, immense pressure from his parents to perform academically. Remember, he's pretty young. Uh, also a member of MSU's gay council and was apparently struggling, trying to come to terms with his own sexual identity. Also suffered from epilepsy and would occasionally have seizures. And allegedly, he manufactured PCP, uh, on, like, you know, made his own PCP and other dangerous substances and got high in his own supply. So maybe the homemade PCP and sexual identity struggle, and academic pressure, and fucking seizures had a little bit more to do with his disappearance than Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, After all the crazy D&D press around the country about this, James would then be found. And by his own admission, his disappearance had literally nothing to do with gaming. Turns out, on the night of his disappearance, James did enter that network of tunnels underneath the university. He had brought uh, with him a bottle of Quaaludes with an intent to end his life. But then he survived that suicide attempt Right, woke up, walked the fuck out of the tunnels, uh, went into hiding at a friend's house, then continued to travel for several several weeks, uh, staying with acquaintances, many of whom he had met uh, through the gay community. Eventually, ending up in New Orleans, where he uh, again attempts to poison himself. After a second suicide attempt, which he again survives, he contacts his family, and then Deer is sent to collect him in Morgan City, Louisiana, on September 13th. James' month long disappearance was more than enough time for the media to create a huge story about the dangers of D and D. Uh, Deer would then make a statement to the press that Dallas's disappearance had not actually been related to D&D, but that retraction received nowhere near the attention the original headlines had, right? Because that's the way it works. Everyone reads the headlines. Almost no one reads the retraction. All this still doesn't stop Deer from telling the story how he wants later. He will later backpedal on his retraction because he was a fucking weasel. In his memoir, The Dungeon Master, Deer still cast himself as a compassionate hero on a quest to save a vulnerable child genius from a web of destructive fantasy, even though he knew that had nothing to do with any of this. 
Deer is a piece of shit knowingly, erroneously defaming D&D to try and sell a memoir no one would fucking buy otherwise. Uh, he would even begin the book with a blatantly made up story about he saved a child from a cult, writing, once Dick and I recovered a child from a religious cult that had kidnapped her in Erie, Pennsylvania. We put our helicopter down in an empty schoolyard. How dramatic. And got the girl, but then we had to deal with armed cult members. Okay. I handed the child to Dick and told him to run for the copter. And I saw the struggle of loyalties in his face. Oh, because the cult almost fucking sucked him in, I guess. Uh, he didn't explain ever what cult this was that he heroically fought off single-handedly. <laughs> Getting into a chopper, no less. Uh, or why there was zero press coverage ever about this story. Because it never fucking happened. He did introduce a character named Dick into this suck, which I am happy about. Our streak continues. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I actually don't know how many sucks in a row now. I've had a character named Dick show up, but it feels like somewhere around 100. Uh, William Deere might still be a PI, by the way. He's 85 years old now, based in Dallas, Texas. Has an active website, social media channels, but no posts establishing him working on anything uh, for sure currently. Also a candidate for governor. <laughs> candidate for Texas governor at the 2010 Texas Democratic primary. Of course. He's also a politician. Uh, this dipshit would go on to tell his version of James's story, the, the bullshit one that put D&D in the center for years and years and years and years. And telling the story, Deer built on a decade's worth of anxieties about young people being preyed on, brainwashed by cults and other subversive forces. Deer's speculations and musings also helped to establish the two key players in this tableau, the gamer as a gifted but vulnerable youth and the dungeon master as sinister cult leader. Uh, together, these two figures of player and dungeon master, convert and cult leader, provide the crucial ingredients cited by noted and now deceased UK sociologist Stanley Cohen for creating a moral panic, a suitable victim, and a suitable scapegoat. The very title of Deere's book, The Dungeon Master, uh, serves to frame the Dungeon Master as something far more significant than a role uh, in a game. For instance, Deere claims he met a gamer who once told him, you must remember that the Dungeon Master, although supposedly an impartial arbiter, can abuse his position and take on the status of God. He can do whatever he wants. If the dungeon master believes that a particular character is weak, he can send that character off on his own. Not just in the game, not just in his head. He can send him on a real mission. Eh. You have to prove you're worthy to play with us, the DM might say. You have to show your mettle. I have a mission that you must complete. Now, oh, fuck off. This guy's so full of shit. This conversation never happened. Uh, back when I was a dungeon master, I sent maybe two players to go sacrifice some pets to the Dark Lord to prove their mettle. And that's how I framed it exactly too. Because that is how D&D players talk. I need you to show me your metal. D&D is mostly about metal. Are you a fighting man? With plenty of metal? Or are you a metalist poopy diaper baby boy? Uh, this story, this completely fabricated story written by Moron, became the master narrative about the dangers of fantasy role-playing games. Even though James's own family would publicly say that the book did not reflect what happened at all in the investigation. Sadly, James enrolled in a new college after returning home, but in August of 1980, almost exactly a year after he disappeared, he did commit suicide using a handgun. Uh, and though the publicity for Dungeons & Dragons was overwhelmingly negative throughout all of this, with Deer laying the blame for James' disappearance at D&D's feet, many laying the, uh, uh, the blame of James' death at D&D's feet, even though it had no connection, uh, sales of the game actually do go up. Right? Fuck yeah. Gary Gygax remarked, ultimately, it was immeasurably helpful to us in, in name recognition. We ran out of stock. Hail Satan. I mean, hail Nimrod. Uh, 1980, TSR's gross income was $4.2 million. So business doing pretty good for this little company, Lake Geneva. 1981, the basic version of Dungeons & Dragons revised by Tom Moldvay, 
to make it even more novice friendly, promoted as a continuation of the original D&D tone, whereas AD&D was promoted as an advancement of the mechanics. Also in 1981, two novels published about gamers suffering psychotic breaks induced by their new hobby, Hobgoblin by John Coyne, a fictional horror novel about a teenage boy who becomes obsessed with the D&D type game called Hobgoblin, who loses touch with reality, thinks the, the game is real, and then Mazes and Monsters by Rona Jaffe. Oh boy. I think her name is Jaffe. It's J-A-F-F-E. Maybe it's Jaff. Yaff. Yaffe. Uh, Jeff's novel was a fictionalized account of James e- or James Egbert's Egbert's excuse me disappearance, a fictionalized account, the supposedly true account of Egbert's disappearance uh, that was fiction. And this new book goes on to become a bestseller. And then in the fall of 1982, CBS adapts it into a made-for-TV movie, Mazes and Monsters, that people think is based on a true fucking story. The lie just keeps getting bigger, more publicized when everybody knows it's not true. Who he was dug into it? James's role as a young man lost in a world of fantasy is played now by Tom Hanks. A role he never played in real life. Uh, here is a promo for this movie that I did see many, many years ago. Tom Hanks and his friends get caught up in a deadly game of fantasy. I am the maze controller. Until they take it too far. I propose we play mazes and monsters in a real setting. <laughs> it won't be a fantasy. Too bad for one of them, because now there's no turning back. This is only a game. I know I killed somebody. Mazes and Monsters. Saturday at 3 on ZTV. I know I killed somebody. Tom Hanks' best acting right there. Uh, yeah, when I saw that movie, I thought it was based on truth. No. Uh, the trope of the delusional D&D player losing their fucking mind thanks to this wicked game is now firmly established in the American consciousness. And then also in 1982, more dark association uh, thrown upon d in a very nonsensical way. On June 9th, 1982, 16-year-old Irving Pulling, again, very sad, commits suicide by shooting himself in the chest. Irving had been in his school's gifted and talented program where, and I hope you're sitting down, meat sex, several games of D&D have been offered as a reward for completing classroom assignments. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had played for a total of nine hours and it fucking killed him. To His mother, Patricia Pulling, looking for someone to, to blame now, or something, now chooses to believe her son's suicide is directly related to Dungeons & Dragons. She believes that the Dungeon Master, a high school English teacher, had literally cursed her son to murder his own family. And she just pulled that out of her ass. No one, no one had talked about curses, cursing families, just 100% made that up. And then her son, Irving, being the brave hero he was, had, of course, resisted and killed himself instead to heroically martyr himself to save his family. Right to end the curse. This is what she actually believes. On her words, in her memoir, Patricia Pulling would write, when my son died and I saw the death curse, <laughs> I saw it, I saw the death curse that had been given to him. I thought that surely no one would take such a curse seriously. Surely no one would follow a command to commit suicide. Then I began to think about the 900 plus people of Jonestown who committed suicide at the command of a deranged leader named Jim Jones. Yeah, because that's so similar. Uh, also inaccurate. As we learned in that suck a long time ago, many people in Jonestown did resist the mass death and they were murdered. Uh, but who cares about truth when you want to push a fanciful boogeyman narrative so you don't have to deal with the, uh, you know, your emotions properly and maybe even you know, possibly blame yourself somewhat. Patric- Patricia Badbrain now files a wrongful death lawsuit against her son's high school principal, Robert A. Bracey III, holding him responsible for what she claimed was a D&D death curse <laughs> placed upon her son's character. 
shortly before. What the? It's a fucking character. Uh, The case was thrown out. As it should have been. Undaunted though, pulling uh, uh, now attempts to sue TSR for $10 million. A judge also throws this case out, citing freedom of speech. And at this point, she should have had to pay for any time and expenses TSR or the school, uh, you know, incurred because of this. I mean, the cases were thrown out, but if they had to, you know, spend any money preparing to defend themselves or whatever, she should have fucking paid pay this. Is, you, should be, you should be punished for, for trying to sue someone or something for something that's fucking stupid. Although the suits were not successful, they did resonate with a lot of communities around the country. In response to Pulling's lawsuit, the local school board in Arlington, Virginia, decides to ban D&D. Several other school districts follow suit. Right? Good job, you mindless sheep. What a bunch of great wise people enriching young people's minds. Uh, capitalizing on becoming the face of uh, Let's Save Our Kids from the Devil's new board game, Patricia now forms an organization called BAD, B-A-D-D, Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons. That's not just a lame name, by the way. Bothered? We're not, we're not even against. We're just bothered. We're bothered about it. Are you guys trying to end it? I mean, kind of. We're just, anno- we're annoyed. Can you imagine if that was like imposed on like, you know, mothers against drug driving. If it was something like mothers annoyed by drunk driving. It's like, it doesn't carry nearly the weight. Bothered about. Uh, they're attacking the game. The company that produced it. Bad literature is <laughs> now distributed throughout schools, churches, and police stations. By 1985, the organization has earned tax exempt status. And its newsletter has, newsletter has 500 subscribers which I'm relieved by that number. When I first looked into notes, I thought it was going to be uh, f- like 5,000 or I was afraid it was even going to be like 500,000. Uh, bad members were not only in the US, but also in Canada, the UK, Australia. A lot of people bothered. Worldwide bothering. Uh, Polly now had effectively reinvented herself as an occult crime investigator who could discern satanic plots behind everyday occurrences. Of course she could. Get out of here, devil. <laughs> Uh, unsurprisingly bad, you know, mostly about taking down D and D very bothered with D and D, uh, echoing statements that William Deere had made a psychiatrist with ties to bad warned fucking psychiatrist part of this group. Jesus. Uh, the most powerful role in the game is that of the dungeon master, the player God who runs and controls the game. He can't control the characters completely, but he can restrict a character's actions and he can destroy, kill him. Yeah. People die in games all the time. Other rumors developed about the control dungeon masters held over their uh, players. Bad claimed a woman left her career in order to become a full-time dungeon master. Uh, that her, her players paid for her house, groceries, and, exp- and expenses. All right. Uh, who cares? A uh, pastor affiliated with the group claimed that the players could save the lives of their characters by paying the dungeon master. Uh, also, file that and who gives a shit? Right? Let that DM take some sucker's money. Uh, again, they're just characters. People sell games all the time. Why not, uh, you know, take some money for characters? Some cases, Guy Gax was now framed as a sort of grand cult leader, uh, a mastermind behind the cult of D&D. Attracted by the daughters of St. Paul, a group of nuns warned parents, you may have just discovered that your son has joined the legion of unsuspecting students who have become victimized by a master con artist, Gary Guy Gax. Good job, ladies. Uh, now shut the fuck up and go back to your comment. Go back to smacking kids in the knuckles, right? And, uh, you know, pushing needless shame upon them that'll leave them with psychological scars they'll never fully recover from. Uh, Bad also argued that the game could not only lead to exploitation by humans, it could lead to the acceptance of different, aka demonic gods. Patricia Poling was somewhat more specific. She explained, a white male who is intelligent, creative, and curious is the most likely to be seduced by the occult. White male who's intelligent, creative, and curious, aka the exact person, uh, you know, probably playing D&D the most. Uh, Bad pointed to publications like Deities and Demigods, uh, which have been released back in 1980 to prove its point. 
The book's cover featured two dueling priests. In the sky behind them was an armored man battling a dragon, a cosmic reflection of the priest's earthly battle. Right, A lot of conservative Christians did not like this book. Uh, evangelical authors John Ankerberg and John Weldon warned readers uh, warned that readers were encouraged to do further research on mythology. Oh, no! Further research? Uh, in actuality, the book recommended such uh, titles as The Egyptian Book of the Dead and The Golden Bow by James Frazier. Ankerberg and Weldon described Frazier's classic work of anthropology as a compendium of occult practices. Uh, we should burn this book. Uh, for groups like bad deities and demigods was a smoking gun that proved D&D was not a potentially psychologically dangerous game like William Deere suggested, but an actual doorway directly into the world of the occult. Satanic panic was now ramping up. Dungeons and Dragons was going to become one of its main targets. As a refresher of the term satanic panic, it generally refers to the over 12,000 unsubstantiated cases of satanic ritual abuse, uh, sometimes known as just uh, ritual abuse, ritualistic abuse, organized abuse, sadistic ritual abuse, started in the U.S. in the uh, early 1980s, spreading throughout many parts of the world by the late 1990s and persisting until today. The satanic panic is a type of moral panic. Right, so, uh, that sociologist Stanley Cohen famously uh, described, uh, given the following definition of a moral panic: a condition, episode, person, or group of persons emerges to become defined as a threat to societal values and interests. Its nature is presented in a stylized and stereotypical fashion by the mass media. The moral barricades are manned by editors, bishops, politicians, and other right-thinking people. Socially accredited experts pronounce their diagno- diagnoses and solutions. Ways of coping are evolved or, more often, resorted to. The condition then disappears, submerges, or deteriorates and becomes more visible. Uh, this satanic panic orig- originated in 1980, and we've mentioned this in several episodes now, with the publication of Michelle Remembers, a book co-written by Canadian psychiatrist Lawrence, Lawrence Padster and his patient and future wife, hello, conflict of interest, uh, Michelle Smith which used the discredited practice of recovered memory therapy using hypnosis to make sweeping lurid claims about satanic ritual abuse involving Smith. It was not fucking true. Uh, it was all fucking bullshit. And that bullshit would also then soon target Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, evangelical Rebecca Brown, who died just two and a half years ago, would say this about the game. One of Satan's biggest tools is our con- in our country today is the occult role-playing fantasy games, which have become so popular. Satan is using these games to produce a vast army of the most intelligent young people of this country an army that the Antichrist will be able to tap into and control in an instant. Oh boy. Uh, Rebecca not only believed that the young men she spoke to were demonically possessed and had supernatural powers, but that they knew they were possessed and were lying about it. She describes giving the following advice to a gamer named Bob. (laughs) Already I'm like, "Eh, whose character was allegedly an 80th degree (laughs) cleric, which is not a thing. You would say level, not degree. And you don't go fucking 80 levels. Uh, researching this, because I didn't think it was true, but I looked into it to make sure. It seems the highest level you can currently have uh, with a D&D character is 20. And the highest any edition has ever had, from what I can tell, no more than 36. You can tweak a game to go higher, but there are no official spells or any kind of powers to be gained by continuing to go up and up and up. Without getting lost in the nerdy weeds, this is a clear indicator to me that, you know, Rebecca is just a fucking huge liar. A lazy liar who didn't take 10 minutes to look into the rules so she wouldn't sound stupid. Uh, but anyway, here's what Becky said about her never really happened conversation with no one. Bob, let's get honest. Your powers come from demon spirits and your deity is actually a demon, which affects every aspect of your life, not just the game. It rules you. Did you know that you can be set free from the rule of your deity? Is that how people actually talk? Um, 
this lying fuckface, lying to her congregation in God's name, warning them not to be tricked by demons as she is tricking them. Uh, to combat Satan's influence, a multitude of evangelical organizations now distribute leaflets, manifestos against tabletop RPGs, uh, like one entitled Dark Dungeons. In this comic, a group of uh, precious teens, innocent souls ripe for the harvesting, sit around a table playing dungeons and let Satan buttfuck your face. Uh, with, <laughs> now they sit around playing like a D&D game uh, with a blonde-haired girl casting a spell. She says, okay, Dungeon Master, my spell of light blinds the monster. Later in the game, the Dungeon Master kills a character named Blackleaf telling her player, Marcy, Marcy, get out of here. You're dead. You don't exist anymore. That doesn't happen in these games. When you're playing with people, yeah, they set off to the side and keep, continue to eat their snacks. You're like, well, your character's dead. Get out of my house. You don't exist. Uh, then the DM tells the blonde girl, Debbie, that your cleric has been raised to the eighth level. I think it's time that you learn how to really cast spells. And Debbie replies, you mean you're going to teach me how to have the real power? This is the shitty script of a terrible after-school movie. Uh, the very next panel shows a group of people in dark robes. <laughs> Stand, standing, of course, on an enormous pentagram with the caption, all caps, the intense occult training through D&D prepared Debbie to accept the invitation to enter a witch's coven. Burn the witch! Burn the witch! Burn the witch! This is like Salem's witch trial shit, but happening so much more recently. Uh, this makes the game now real, and now Debbie's able to cast real spells, like one on her dad, mind bondage, that keeps him from trying to stop her from playing D&D. Uh, excuse me. Uh, the spell mind bondage results in Debbie's dad buying her $200 worth of new D&D figurines and manuals. That's how Satan gets you, through the little figurines. Bunch of real geniuses getting together to create this cautionary comic. Uh, later that week, Debbie goes to see her old friend Marcy. And Marcy's mom says that ever since her character in the game got killed, it's as though a part of her died. And then you guys, when Debbie enters Marcy's room, she finds that Marcy has hanged herself. Damn you, Dungeons and Dragons! Damn you to hell! Wait, you're, uh, you're already in hell. Damn you to somewhere else. Ah, fuck. Uh, the DM is, of course, not sympathetic to Marcy's death, right? She tells Debbie that her spiritual growth in the game is way more important than some, quote, lousy loser's life. And Debbie now starts to wonder what she's gotten herself into. The DM now warns her not to be stupid. Don't be stupid, Debbie. And then, you guys, Debbie now realizes she doesn't want to be Elf Star anymore. She just wants to be Debbie. She just wants to be Debbie. Luckily, Debbie meets up with her uh, buff-ass friend. Uh, maybe some guy who might, you know, poopo-loopo-er. Mike. Fucking Mike. Mike tells her that Jesus is the only answer and that he has been praying and fasting for her. According to him, she's involved in spiritual warfare that you just can't win without the Lord Jesus. Uh, you need Killer Christ, the most bloodthirsty savior the world has ever known as played, of course, by Nicolas Cage in the Michael Bay blockbuster of this past holiday season. Love thy neighbor, my bottom. The time for love is over. The time for obliteration has begun. Hell yeah. Heard that fake movie did uh, $1 trillion in sales on its fake opening weekend. Anyway, back to this important comic. Mike invites her, uh, invites Debbie to go to church with him. And the pastor there says this, Jesus sets us free from the bondage of witchcraft and gives us victory over the power of the enemy. God words, or God's word declares that you must repent, turn to Jesus Christ, turn to him as your savior. 
Then according to Acts 19.19, you should gather up all your occult paraphernalia like your rock music, occult books, charms, dark dungeons material. Don't throw them away. Burn them. We'll do that here tonight. Oh, fuck yeah, bro. Burn those books. Burn the books. Uh, Then in the comic, good guy Mike says, we will also be praying for the deliverance of those who have allowed occult forces to control them. The speaker orders the spirits of the occult to leave Debbie. And Debbie says that she wants God to be in charge of everything. Not that lousy D&D manual. And now, thank the Lord, Debbie burns all of her occult stuff and thanks the Lord for setting her free. Oh, good job, Deb. Uh, Silly as that story may sound uh, to you, sounds uh, pretty silly to me now. Stuff like that caught on like wildfire in the 80s to a lot of people. Guy Gax had to defend the game as not being part of the Devil's Tool Chest on a fucking segment of 60 Minutes. Aired in 1985. Uh, he uh, He started to fear for his life. Death threats are arriving at the TSR office. Guy Gax has to hire a fucking bodyguard. Crazy fucker sending death threats because of this board game right? The QAnon crowd before there was the internet, same dummies, different haircuts and outfits. Uh, despite this negative publicity or perhaps because of it, TSR's annual D and D sales increase, right? Good publicity in 1982 to us dollar, uh, $16 million. And in January, 1983, the New York times speculates that D and D might become the great game of the 1980s in the same manner that monopoly became emblematic of the great depression. So D and D is kicking ass, but also creating, or rather being the victim, uh, becoming the victim of a lot of scary turmoil. Uh, there was turmoil within the company as well. Brian Bloom persuaded Guy Gax to allow Brian's brother, Kevin, to purchase Melvin Bloom's shares. And this gave the Bloom brothers a controlling interest uh, in this uh, company. And by the early 1980s, Guy Gax and the Blooms are increasingly at loggerheads over management of the company. Uh, Guy Gax's frustrations at work and increased prosperity from his generous royalty checks also make his personal life bit rocky. He and Mary Jo have been active members of the local Jehovah's Witnesses for years. What? Did not see that coming. Others in the congregation already felt uneasy about Gygax's smoking and drinking, but now his connection to the satanic game of D&D is more than they can bear, and they disassociate themselves from the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, Mary Jo is not happy about this. She misses her, uh, her old friends and uh, is really starting to resent the amount of time her husband is spending playing games. Uh, she develops a drinking problem. The couple argues frequently. Gygax, meanwhile, starts doing a lot of fucking blow. Cocaine, baby! Starts having a number of extramarital affairs. Extramarital affairs. Finally, in 1983, when Gary's 45, and I imagine Mary Jo is the same age, close to it, the two have an acrimonious divorce. At this time, the Blooms want to now get Gygax out of Lake Geneva so they can manage the company without his interference. And they split TSR hobbies into TSR Incorporated and TSR Entertainment. Gygax becomes the president of the entertainment branch, and the Blooms send him to Hollywood to develop TV and movie opportunities. Gary, newly single, takes advantage of his time on the West Coast, renting an immense mansion, increasing his cocaine use, and spending time with several young starlets. Uh, he, goes, he goes fucking all in on gaming, and he goes all in on his midlife crisis. Also in 1983, uh, revisions of those sets by Frank Metzner were released, revising the presentation of the rules to a more tutorial format. These are followed by Companion in 1983, uh, yeah, Master 1985, and Immortals 1986, those sets. Each set covers gameplay for more powerful characters than the previous. Uh, these would be compiled into a single hardcover in 1991, the Dungeons & Dragons Cyclopedia. That same year, Ravenloft, an adventure module, is released. It sells 50,000 copies its first year out. Pretty big number. Uh, getting 50,000 new people to play D&D by generating a gothic horror setting seems like a good plan, but it's not actually a massive success. The real number was not 50,000 new people buying that setting. Turns out it was mostly people already playing AD&D 2nd Edition. So they're not finding new fans. They're just taking their existing fan base and chopping it up. And every new setting is another chop. 
Uh, you would suddenly have people go from buying 200,000 copies of Forgotten Realms and then for the next set of Forgotten Realms, they're selling 30,000 copies. Ah, Forgotten Realms. That was the uh, setting I played in. Horan, probably still kicking ass somewhere in there. Uh, D&D was also now expanding in other ways with TSR. The CBS network created a Dungeons & Dragons cartoon, aired on Saturday mornings from 1983 to 1986. Premise of the cartoon was the same as uh, Arneson's original Blackmore campaign. Features a group of teenagers who board a Dungeons & Dragons ride at a carnival and are magically transported into a world of magic and monsters. Each episode portrayed the teens' continued efforts to return home, and I'm sure a lot of parents forbid their children to watch this. Uh, speaking of uh, showbiz, uh, because he was occupied with getting a movie off the ground in Hollywood, Guy Gax now has to leave the day-to-day operations of TSR to Kevin and Brian Bloom. 1984, after months of negotiation, he reaches an agreement with Orson Welles to star in a D&D movie and John Borman to act as producer and director. But almost at the same time, he receives word that back in Lake Geneva, TSR has run into severe financial difficulties. And Kevin Bloom is now shopping the company for $6 million. Gary immediately discards his movie ambitions. The D&D movie will never be made now. Flies back to Lake Geneva. Discovers to his shock that although industry leader TSR is grossing over $30 million a year, it's barely breaking even. In fact, it's uh, $1.5 million in debt, teetering on the edge of insolvency. How? After investigating, Gygax uh, brings his findings to five other company directors. What he finds is that it was uh, mismanagement by Kevin Bloom, excess inventory, overstaffing, too many company cars, and some very questionable and expensive projects like dredging up a 19th century shipwreck. All right. Uh, There were rumors that the company owned a mansion on the Isle of Man in the UK, had discussed purchasing a railroad company to vertically uh, integrate shipping. Many of TSR's woes stem from a fundamental issue with tabletop role-playing games as well uh, as far as revenue. How do you make money selling a product that encourages players to use their own free imagination? Uh, Gary demands that Kevin Bloom be removed as CEO. The board agrees, but they still believe that financial problems uh, are terminal and the company needs to be sold. Gary does not agree. In March 1995, Gygax exercises his 700 share stock option, giving him just over 50% control. Go, Gary, go. Points himself president and CEO. Rather than sell the company, he takes steps to produce new revenue-generating products. Love how much he loves to protect this baby. Uh, he contacts original D&D co-creator Dave Arneson with a view to produce some new uh, Blackmore material. Also bets heavily on a new A&D book, uh, Unearthed Arcana, a compilation of material called uh, Cold from Dragon Magazine articles. Quickly writes a novel set in Greyhawk, saga of Old City featuring a protagonist called Gord the Rogue in order to bring some financial stability to TSR. Hires a company manager, Lorraine Williams. Uh, Lorraine was the sister of Gary's close friend and business associate, Flint Dill, and Lorraine will fuck him over. Uh, around this time, Gary becomes seriously involved with his former TSR assistant, Gail Carpenter, dating the assistant, continuing with the midlife crisis. Uh, they live together in a lavish four-room condominium on the second floor of Stone Manor, a converted mansion on the shores of Lake Geneva. Scandalous. Uh, when Unearthed Arcana is released in July of 1985, Gygax's bet pays off. The new book sells 90,000 copies in the first month. Novel sells uh, uh, really well also, and he immediately publishes a sequel, Artifact of Evil. The financial crisis had been averted, but Gygax also has paved the way for his own downfall. In October of 1985, the new manager, Lorraine Williams, reveals that she has purchased all of the shares of Kevin and Brian Bloom after Brian triggered his own 700 share option. By this time, the Blooms were more than happy to acquiesce. They wanted out after many turbulent years with Gary and most recently Gary's aggressive removal of Kevin's CEO. Uh, excuse me, the Williams now are the, uh, Williams is now the majority shareholder and she replaces Guy Gax as president and CEO of his own company. This fucking witch. Guy Gax is out of his own company again 
Too bad this guy wasn't as good with real world business as he was with fantasy world building. Uh, Lorraine now makes it clear that Gygax would be making no further creative contributions to TSR. Several of his projects in development immediately shelved, never published. Gygax now takes TSR to court in a bid to block the Bloom's sale of their shares to Williams, but loses. To turn back to another character for a moment, in 1986, nutball extraordinaire Patricia Poling, still at it, uh, giving lectures to police officers now who are actually listening to her. That's fun. About her son and satanic conspiracy theories. At a lecture in Fort Collins, Colorado, Poling states that several weeks before her son's death, he had been displaying lycanthropic tendencies, such as running around the backyard on all fours and barking. Mm -hmm. The game turned him into a fucking werewolf. She's using her son's suicide to put more money in her pocket now. Some people truly no limit to what they'll do to make money and have some level of fame. All right, Poling also quoted as saying that within the month before her son's death, 19 rabbits he had raised were inexplicably torn apart. Although no loose, no loose dogs were seen, a cat was also found, disemboweled. Uh-huh, more lies. Just liking you less and less, Patricia. Uh, meanwhile, business for D&D is great. Not so great, though, for its co-creator. Uh, while sales of Dungeons & Dragons reach a fever pitch worldwide, Gary Gygax resigns from all positions in October of 1986, settling disputes by the following December. By the terms of his settlement with TSR, Gygax kept the right to gourd the rogue, as well as all D&D characters whose names were anagrams or plays on his own name, like uh, Y-R-A-G-Z-A-G-Y-G. However, he lost the rights to all his other work, including the world of Greyhawk, and the names of all the other characters he had ever used in TSR material. Uh, immediately after leaving uh, TSR, Gygax is approached by a wargaming acquaintance now, Forrest Baker, who has done some consulting work for TSR, or had done in 1983 and 84. So he does get a new business opportunity. Life isn't all terrible, and he's still getting royalties. Uh, Gygax, who is tired of, a com- of company management, was simply looking for some way to market more of his Gord the Rogue novels now. Uh, but Baker has a vision for a new gaming company. He promises he'll handle the business end. Gygax can handle the creative. Uh, Barker also is guaranteed that using Gygax's name I'm excuse me, excuse me. Baker also guaranteed that using Gygax's name, he'd be able to bring in one to two million dollars of investment. Uh, Gygax decides this is a good opportunity, and in October of 1986, New Infinities Productions Incorporated is publicly announced. Gary works quickly to poach a couple of his best people from TSR, but before a single product is released, Forrest Baker leaves NIPI when his promised outside investment of one to two million dollars fails to materialize. Uh, now Gary is back in charge of the business, which he doesn't want to be. He immediately looks for a quick product to get NIPI off the ground. He retained the rights to Gord the Rogue as part of that severance agreement. So he licenses uh, Greyhawk from TSR, starts writing new novels, beginning with Sea of Death. Sales are brisk. Gygax's uh, Gord the Rogue novels end up keeping new infinities in business. Legal battles with TSR, however, will drain NIPI's capital. So much garbage. During all this drama, Gygax becomes a father again. In November of 1986, Gail gives birth to Gygax's sixth child, Alex. Oh, man. Uh, August 15th, 1987, on what would have been his parents' 50th wedding anniversary, Gygax marries Gail Carpenter. Uh, During 1987-1988, Gygax works with Flint Dill on the Saggard the Barbarian books, as well as role-playing mastery in its sequel, Master of the Game, writes two more Gord the Rogue novels. However, by 1988, TSR had rewritten the setting for the world of Greyhawk and Gygax not happy with the new direction in which, in which TSR is taking his creation. How maddening, he can't stop him. In a literary declaration that his old world was dead and wanting to make a clean break with all things Greyhawk, Gygax now destroys his version of uh, um, uh, this, this setting in the Gord the Rogue novel Dance of Demons. While the Gord the Rogue novels, uh, when they're with them finished, NIPI's main source of steady income is dried up. And the company needs a new product now. 
Gygax announced in 1988 in a company newsletter that he and Rob Kuntz, uh, his co-dungeon master during the early days of the Greyhound campaign, were now working as a team again. Uh, this time, they would create a new multi-genre fantasy RPG called Infinite Adventures, which would be supported by different game books for different genres. Uh, this line would detail the castle and city of Greyhawk as Gygax and Kuntz had originally envisioned, envisioned them, now called Castle Dunfalcon. <laughs> However, before work on this project could commence, uh, NIPI ran out of money, forced into bankruptcy, and dissolved in 1989. After NIPI folds, Gygax decided to create an entirely new RPG again called The Carpenter Project, one considerably more complex and rule-heavy than his original and relatively simple D&D system. Uh, he also wanted to create a horror setting for the new RPG called Unhallowed. Work progresses favorably until March of 1992 when TSR files an injunction against Dangerous Dimensions, claiming the name and initials too similar to Dungeons and Dragons. So Gygax changes it to Dangerous Journeys and starts work again. In addition to his work on the RPG and the Mythos setting, Gygax also writes three new novels. Man, he's fucking pumping out a lot of shit. Released under uh, publisher Penguin and reprints by uh, and reprinted by Paisal Publishing. Meanwhile, there is still religious opposition to D&D. Evangelical theologians Peter Lightheart and George Grant make a very weird argument in their 1980 book, A Christian Response to Dungeons and Dragons, The Catechism of the New Age. For them, the problem is not only that the fantasy role-playing games ignore God. Instead, they suggest that reality is an extension of God's will and therefore imagining an alternative reality is a form of rebellion against God. What? Uh, sounds like these guys had too much time on their hands. Basically, don't fucking daydream about fantastical shit. That's, that's the devil. They explain, ultimately, all extreme identification with the role is a sin uh, because it involves a rebellious rejection of the role to which God has assigned us. So don't cosplay. Uh, this motive is apparent in many of the D&D enthusiasts. They hate their God-given role in the God-directed drama of history, and they play D&D in order to create their own identity in their own history, which is a uh, you know, slap in the face to God. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, Leinhardt and Grant also assert that games like D&D lead to violence and the literal practice of witchcraft. Uh, but they regard the ability to imagine and mentally inhabit other, inhabit other worlds as the most serious threat. Uh, good job, guys. Way to really put your mind to good use. I uh, hope you get a bunch of high fives and fist bumps in heaven. What are you doing? Uh, late 1992, the Dangerous Journeys RPG is released by Game Designers Workshop, but then TSR immediately applies for an injunction against the entire Dangerous Journeys RPG and their Mythos setting, arguing that it's too similar to DD, uh, D&D and AD&D. My God, it's just, not, it's just nonstop courtroom stuff. Although the injunction fails, TSR moves forward with even more litigation. Gygax believes all this legal action is without merit and fueled by Lorraine Williams' personal uh, hatred of him. Uh, both of the companies backing Gygax withdraw from the project, killing the Mythos computer game that they were also developing. He must have wanted to fucking kill her. I, I bet Lorraine showed up in a lot of his gaming campaigns because he's still playing, <laughs> you know, when he's DMing. Uh, behold, now before you lies the most powerful demigorgon you have ever seen. It is the Lorraine. And she is surrounded by the most vile coven of troglodytes ever witnessed, the litigators. Only fighting man can save you. Fight, 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 fight the little rain, fight the little rain. Uh, yeah, not, not all is going well for TSR at this time either. A cheesy VCR game would, according to some, be the company's death knell now. Uh, Dragon Strike is an introductory box set for D&D, which came with a cheesy instructional video. And here's how it starts. Feeling brave tonight? How brave? Brave enough to do battle with hideous monsters? Hmm? 
Brave enough to sneak around dank castles in the dark and chance being the next victim of a dragon strike. Uh, to be clear, that voice comes from a dude in a black turtleneck, of course, with an alarming amount of hairspray in his feather banks. My favorite one, he said, ready to battle monsters. Hmm. I really like the hmm. Uh, the game was supposed to uh, hook a new generation on fantasy adventure. Instead, it sat in the warehouse, taking up space, eating up production costs and being mocked when people did see it. Uh, by 1994, the legal costs associated with many months of pretrial discovery had now drained all of Gygax's resources. Believing that TSR was also suffering, Gygax offers to settle. In the end, TSR pays Gygax for the complete rights to Dangerous Journeys and Mythos. Although Gygax is well compensated for his years of work on Dangerous Journeys and Mythos, TSR immediately and permanently just shelves them both. Just so much pettiness. 1995, the core rulebooks are slightly revised, although still referred to by TSR as the second edition. And a series of players' option manuals are released as optional rulebooks. The release of AD&D 2nd Edition deliberately excluded some aspects of the game that had attracted negative publicity. Right, All that satanic panic has him nervous. References to demons and devils, uh, sexually suggestive artwork, and playable evil-aligned character types are removed. Come on, no, you gotta double down on all that. Lean into it. Get more free publicity. Uh, the edition moved away from a theme of 1960s and 1970s sword and sorcery fantasy fiction to a mixture of medieval history and mythology. The rules underwent minor changes, including the addition of non-weapon proficiencies, skill-like abilities that originally appeared in first edition supplements. The game's magical spells were divided into schools and spheres. Major difference was the promotion of various game settings beyond that of traditional fantasy. This included blending fantasy with other genres such as horror, like Ravenloft, science fiction, spelljammer, and apocalyptic dark sun, as well as alternative historical and non-European mythological settings. Uh, the company experienced another crisis in the mid-1990s then. D&D now more popular than ever, but the company has published more supplemental products than a saturated market it, uh, is willing to consume. Meanwhile, new games eaten away at TSR's uh, market share. The biggest of these is a card game called Magic the Gathering, published by Wizards of the Coast. Fuck yeah. Uh, been years since I played it. Although Magic was not a role-playing game, it contained elements of fantasy and attracted the same market. More importantly, Magic was sold in the form of inexpensive packs that contained a random assortment of cards. Some players were willing to spend exorbitant amounts of money in search of rare cards. Despite these obstacles, 1996 was the best sales year in the history of the company, $40 million in revenue. However, a clause in TSR's distribution contract quickly turns that triumph into disaster. 1981, TSR had entered a distribution agreement with Random House, which shipped TSR products to small bookstores like Walden Books. Oh, Walden Books, sorry, I used to uh, shoplift from you as a teen. Uh, rest in peace, they died in 2011. Anyway, at the end of the year, the contract allowed Random House to return any unsold products to TSR, at which time TSR would have to pay for the products as well as a handling fee. That year, TSR had heavily invested in hardcover fantasy novels as well as a new game called Dragon Dice. Uh, and anyway, this, this process, this handling fee comes back to bite them in the ass. Also, Dragon's Dice was TSR's answer to Magic the Gathering. Instead of packs containing random cards, players were encouraged to purchase box containing randomly patterned dice, which doesn't sound fun or cool. Both of these products flop. At the end of the year, nearly a third of TSR's products are returned. After paying Random House uh, all these fees, the company now does not have capital for further printing and finished project products are sitting unprinted. Starting to look like TSR is, is done, despite, you know, a lot of popularity. Just so many bad business decisions. Williams immediately begins searching for someone to purchase TSR, assume its debts, and in 1987, she will find it Bare Evil Incorporated. Yes, Bear Evil has owned Dungeons & Dragons ever since. They fucking own everything. Uh, no, TSR was uh, initially purchased by a collectible card company 
called Five Rings Publishing. And then soon afterwards, they are bought out by Wizards of the Coast. So both companies owned by them. Now following three years of development, Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition released in 2000. New release folds the basic and advanced lines back into a single unified game. Largest revision of D&D rules to date serves as the basis for a multi-genre role-playing system designed around 20-sided dice called the D20 system. Third edition rules designed to be internally consistent and less restrictive than previous editions of the game, allowing players more flexibility to create characters they want to play. Uh, Skills and feats introduced into the core rules to encourage further customization. New rules also standardized uh, and mechanics of action, resolution, and combat. Or standardizes the mechanics of action, resolution, and combat. Uh, While World uh, Wizards of the Coast, excuse me, was busy refocusing TSR's products, Christopher Clark of Inner City Game Designs approaches Gygax in 1997 to suggest they produce some adventures to sell in game stores while TSR is otherwise occupied. And the result is a pair of fantasy adventures published by Inner City Games, A Challenge of Arms, 1998, and The Ritual of the Golden Eyes, 1999. Uh, Gygax then introduces some investors to Clark's publication setup. And although the investors are not willing to fund publication of Legendary Adventures, another uh, uh, par- project, Clark and Gygax form a partnership called Hecaforge Productions. And uh, now Gygax is able to return to publish Legendary Adventures in 1999, publishes a three-volume set. Luckily, the new owner of TSR, uh, Wizard of the Coast Peter Atkinson, does not harbor uh, any of Lorraine Williams' ill will towards Gygax and purchases all of Gygax's residual rights to D&D and AD&D for a six-figure sum. I thought it'd be more, actually. Uh, after that, Gygax continues to work on Legendary Adventures, which he believes is his best work, however sales below his expectations. And then in 2000, Gygax, now 62 years old, makes some extra cash performing voiceover narration for cartoons and video games, shows up in Futurama. Uh, by 2002, Gygax has given Christopher Clark of Hecaforge an encyclopedic 72,000-word text describing the legendary Earth. Clark splits the manuscript into five books, expands it, uh, with each of the final books showing up at around 128,000 words. Man, a lot of stuff. Uh, this guy never stopped, just, you know, loves his shit. During his time with TSR, Gygax had often mentioned the mysterious uh, Castle Greyhawk, which uh, formed the center of his own home campaign. Uh, Despite all of his written output over the previous 30 years, Gygax had never published details about this castle, though. And now that's about to change. Big passion project, 2003. He announces he's again partnering with uh, Robert Coons to publish the original and previously unpublished details of Castle Greyhawk and the city of Greyhawk in six volumes. Uh, The project would use the rules for castles and crusades rather than D&D now, though. Uh, since Wizards of the Coast, you know, still own the right to the name Greyhawk, Gygax has to change the, uh, Gygax changes the name of Castle Greyhawk to Castle Zagig, reverse homophone of his own name, and changes the name of the nearby city to Igsburg, playing his initials EGG. Scale of the project is enormous, and by the time Gygax and Kuntz had stopped working on the original home campaign, the castle dungeons had encompassed 50 levels of complex passages, thousands of rooms and traps, this plus plans for the city of Eggsburg and encounter areas outside the castle and city would clearly be too much to fit into the initially proposed six volumes. This is a huge challenge, big project. Uh, although Gygax still had his old maps of the original city, all of his previously published work on the city is owned by Wizards of the Coast. So he has to create most of the city all over again from scratch while trying to maintain the look and feel of his original work. Very annoying. And then the work uh, comes to a complete halt when he suffers a stroke in April of 2004. Another one a few weeks later. Finally, in 2005, Castle Zagig, Part 1, Igsburg, the first book in the six-book series, appears. But that same year, Gygax is diagnosed with a potentially deadly uh, abdominal aortic aneurysm. 
Doctors concur that surgery is needed, but their estimates of success vary from 50 to 9%. With no firm medical consensus, Gygax comes to believe he'll likely die on the operating table and refuses to have the surgery, knowing that he could die at any moment. In one concession to his condition, he switches from cigarettes, which he had smoked since high school, to cigars. It wasn't until 2008 that Gygax is able to finish the second volume of the six volumes, which describes details of the castle above ground. Next two volumes supposed to detail the dungeons beneath Castle Zagig. However, before they could be written, Gygax dies March 4th, 2008. And strangely, no demonic spells uh, would be used to resurrect the OGDM. Guess all that satanic panic stuff was really nonsense. Uh, At Gen Con, the din of the exhibit hall was halted in order to hold a moment of silence for the man who had founded the conference. The Gen Con staff also had a special plaque dedicated to Gygax that read, The first DM, he taught us to roll the dice. He opened the door to new worlds. His work shaped our industry. He brought us Gen Con. For this, we thank him. In Lake Geneva, Gygax's funeral followed by an impromptu session of gaming. I love that. They quickly developed into an annual event called Gary Con. Uh, Meanwhile, after his death, occult accusations continue. In 2011, Don Rimmer, a retired police officer from Virginia Beach, uh, utilizes the popularity of vampire media such as Twilight and True Blood to revive fears of teenagers driven to violence by fantasy role-playing games. In a newspaper article about the growing threat of occult crime, Reimer warned, fantasy role-playing like Dungeons and Dragons and vampire gaming are alive and well. They are, there are people who take gaming to another level, one that results in deaths and suicides. In the world of gaming, there is evil. All right, Don. Uh, sounds like since you've retired, you, uh, you need to find some uh, new fucking hobbies. Uh, then in April of 2013, Pat Robertson appears in the 700 Club and answers an email asking, is it safe for a Christian to enjoy video games that have magic in them if the person playing the games is not practicing the magic? No one is actually practicing magic. <laughs> what the fuck is going on? Robertson responds that Christians should not play such games, adding that Dungeons and Dragons have literally destroyed people's lives. So dramatic. Hey, has anyone seen Billy lately? Uh, I haven't seen him in months. Not since he started playing. Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, I saw him yesterday at the Insane Asylum. He was wearing a straitjacket sitting alone in a padded room. He wouldn't answer any of my questions or even make eye contact. He just stared off blankly into the corner, just constantly saying, Fight! 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 The doctor said his whole life is destroyed. Then in 2015, the police department of Natchez, Mississippi, Uh, featured a website outlining the warning signs of occult involvement. One of the first items on the list reads, heavy into fantasy games. Note, fantasy games have no rules or guidelines. They encourage creativity without boundaries. The player loses the boundary between reality and fantasy. My God, some real geniuses running the police department down in Natchez. If there's one thing I know about imagination, it's dangerous and satanic. I guess that's two things, maybe three. I ain't getting paid for math wizard. Hey, Peoples are not meant to think freely, to get lost in daydreams. That's where the devil gets you, in your daydreams, in your creativity. We have to keep an eye on artists and remain vigilant and ready to snuff them out at a moment's notice. Uh, I picture this department sending uh, undercover officers to like horror movies at the movie theater. And Halloween, man, no one gets that night off. We must remain vigilant. Okay, jumping up to 2020 now. Information released by Wizard of the Coast declares 2020 is the best year ever for the world's biggest role-playing game. The pandemic, great time to get into long-form fantasy gaming while you're stuck inside. 
company claims that over 50 million people have played Dungeons & Dragons to date in the 2020 seventh year of consecutive growth. Uh, finally, pretty recently, August 18th, 2022, uh, part of a, as part of a new publishing initiative, Wizards of the Coast reveals that it plans to make a number of changes to D&D, which includes the introduction of a, an official virtual playing space, physical slash digital book bundles, and eventual 2024 re-release of the core D&D rulebooks. The initiative 1D&D marks a significant move by Wizards of the Coast to move D&D into the modern gaming landscape in what D&D's current design architect Jeremy Crawford calls the start of a new generation. Under 1D&D, Wizards plans to release its own virtual play space, restructure and streamline the game's rules, and try to organize all of its digital play tools for D&D together into one single place. I love it, and I hope someday I have time to dive back into it. Uh, looks like 2023 will bring us a Dungeons & Dragons movie, Horror Among Thieves. <laughs> Excuse me, Horror. Honor Among Thieves. Uh, traders have been, uh, have been out for a while, and the CGI looks pretty dope. Plot summary on IMDb describes it as a charming thief and a band of unlikely adventurers embarking on an epic quest to retrieve a lost relic. But things go dangerously awry when they run afoul of the wrong people. Uh, time will tell if it captures the magic of the original game. And now let's get out of this timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. You find yourself standing in front of an open door. Beyond it lies a cavern of riches. Though you have suffered much, your bravery and courageousness has rewarded you, and you are now one of the richest men in the land. But you are even richer in companionship, as those on the quest with you will remain lifelong friends. But for now, your quest has ended. Dungeons and Dragons. Hard to tell the story of an entire massive subculture in just a few hours. I hope I didn't, uh, hope I didn't fuck anything up. It's a lot of, like, details that uh, were a little tricky to get my brain around some of them. So many people, good and bad, shaped it. So many events uh, made it, you know, what it is today, both as a game and, and, and in cultural memory. Uh, almost all of it goes back to Gary Gygax. As a young boy living in Chicago, raising hell with the Kenmore Pirates, still can't believe what they were doing at seven years old, Gary fell in love with his father's stories, fairy tales, in which brave heroes fought fearsome monsters and prevailed in the end. As a young man, after moving to Lake Geneva, he would become obsessed, like many others, with The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, as well as many other science fiction and fantasy novels that were now being published for a young and hungry American audience. Gary would grow up pretty quickly, getting married at 19 to his childhood friend, Mary Jo Powell, starting a family, working to support that family. But his childlike wonder never left him. He also proved to be a skilled tactician when he started learning war games like Avalon Hills Gettysburg. Then he would start designing his own games. Before D&D was the game as we know it, it grew out of a medieval war game called Chainmail. And then later in 1974, he would publish Dungeons & Dragons. Originally, it came in the form of three booklets in a wood grain colored cardboard box. First print run was a thousand hand assembled copies and it sold out in less than a year. Things were looking good. Sales got better and better year after year, but then the lawsuits came right after his partner or co-creator, you know, dies and uh, that kind of shit just would never stop. Gary would be forced out of his own company, have to deal with death threats because of satanic panic alarmists and making all kind of wild accusations and outright lies about a game that they never took the time to understand. For decades now, D&D has been accused of promoting Satanism and witchcraft. Satanic panic peaked in the 80s with religious groups publishing anti-D&D tracks that showed the RPG to be a slippery slope into demonic worship, murder, suicide, more. So many lies around the 1979 disappearance of James Dallas Egbert, who was later revealed hadn't ever played the game before. Lies promoted by William Deere, the investigator who wrote a fraudulent memoir about finding him. All right, that all got the satanic fire around D&D burning so bright that it still hasn't gone out. And hopefully it's not going to get, uh, you know, 
uh, start burning brighter again. Groups like Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons, I still love Bothered in there, spearheaded by Patricia Pulling, tried to convince the nation that the game was part of a satanic conspiracy meant to destroy the souls of young people. Now, it's just a game, a really fun, imaginative, and rich, wonderful game where you can get out of your head for a few hours a week or a lot of hours a week and be someone else, living in a different world with your friends who also get to be who they want to be. And you can all work together and go on mythical adventures in a spirit of fellowship. You can make friends, maybe find real romantic interests with the people you're playing with. You can do it all without ever having to step outside and actually battle anything and never be too far from beverages and snacks. As a 2022 Dungeons & Dragons is played by millions and millions of players, many of whom are joining a legacy of imagination and creativity established decades ago. Uh, None, as far as I know, have had their lives destroyed by the Dark Lord. Uh, Just people enjoying spending time together who can find a, who want to find, excuse me, a bit of magic maybe to put in their everyday lives. So go play. Go try and find it. Enjoy it. Nimrod will be watching, as will Lucifina and Bojangles. They might even show up in the game, help you out on your quest, or harm you. Who knows? Maybe you'll even run into a nice white-haired bard in some dingy tavern. Triple M, singing songs for coins. Toss a coin to your witcher, oh, dungeons and dragons, and fight, 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 fight. Let's get to our takeaways. It's fucking nonsensical. I apologize for hurting your ears. Time suck. Top five takeaways. I'm having a hell of a time finding buttons today, but number one. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons has become a hugely popular game, something that defined many people's childhoods and young adulthoods, letting them explore their creativity alongside one another, often fostering lifelong connections and friendships. Uh, but the beloved game had a pretty humble beginning. Uh, Gary Gygax, building on his childhood love of fantasy and science fiction, as well as his adult obsession with war games. Gary and his collaborators developed the first edition Dungeons and Dragons with all the money they had, which wasn't much, and packaged it all in their homes, dreaming that their homegrown game would maybe, possibly, you know, make enough money for them to be able to uh, quit their day jobs. And it became so much more than that. Number two, meat sacks love games. For as long as society's been around, we have loved playing games together. Gives us an opportunity to learn, to uh, simulate what we've observed in the world around us and to figure out how to cooperate with one another. From Prussian generals trying to simulate battles to teenagers role-playing, meat sacks have always found self-expression in games. Number three, as much as we meat sacks love games, always going to be people who will oppose them. Scared people who sometimes just don't get it. In this case, people who truly think that this nerdy fantasy game is the devil's work. After the disappearance of James Dallas Egbert in 1979 and the suicide of Irving Pulling in 1982, a media frenzy, you know, just burned across the country. And the group bad. People so bothered by Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, led by Patricia Pulling, did its best to convince the country that D&D was a pathway to literal hell. Number four, not only did religious controversy follow Dungeons & Dragons, but controversy inside the company led to oh so many lawsuits that forced Gary Gygax out of the very business that he built. Number five, new info. Another index of current attitudes towards fantasy games developed during the 2012 election cycle when Colleen uh, Lashowitz, social worker from Maine, ran for the state Senate. Her opponents discovered that she regularly played the online fantasy game World of Warcraft and they gained access to comments she made during the game. Her opponent's strategists sent out mailers alerting voters to Lashowitz's interest in the game and even created the website Colleen'sWorld.com, which <laughs> featured comments she typed while playing this game and pictures of her character, an orc assassin named Santiago. 
The site declared Maine needs a state senator that lives in the real world, not in Colleen's fantasy world. This is another sad reminder of how fucking dumb so many politicians are. Don't need a degree or any successful business experience to enter the world of politics, too often far from the best and brightest. Uh, when CNN covered the story, Lauschwitz gave an interview by phone during which a news anchor demanded an explanation for the comment on the World of Warcraft page, I love poisoning and stabbing. It is fun. <laughs> the rhetoric that Lashwitz lives in a fantasy world was calculated to build on 30 years of claims that fantasy role-playing games contribute to violent behavior and an inability to discern fantasy from reality. She's going to fucking stab and poison people. But the strategy backfired. Not only did Lashwitz win the election, outraged gamers around the country donated thousands and thousands of dollars to uh, political action committees that supported her campaign. So hail Nimrod and fuck idiots against gaming. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Dungeons and Dragons, satanic tool or harmless game has been sucked. Uh, again, hoping I got it right. And I'm guessing if I didn't, Pay attention to the updates coming up because uh, people really into this world, they will let me know. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making Time Suck. Thank you to Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Thank you to the Art Warlock, Logan Keith, producing and directing today, staying a little late to do so. Thank you to the Suck Ranger, Tyler C., for helping with production. Uh, thanks to Bitelixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app. Art Warlock, again, for creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com uh, and for helping run our socials along with the Suck Ranger and a team managed by social media strategist Ryan Handelsman. And thanks to every member of our numerous online communities on Facebook, Reddit, and Discord. Uh, next week on Time Suck, let's dive into the old controversial Amanda Knox murder trial. Uh, I didn't learn a lot about it at the time, kind of like with uh, Casey Anthony and uh, Lacey Peterson, but I'll learn a lot now. Did you know that she is a podcaster currently? She is. Is she also a murderer? Imagine that you're 20 years old. You worked three jobs for a year and saved up as much as you could to have the experience of a lifetime studying abroad in Italy. You worked out all the details. Found a school and housing. You board your flight, land in Italy, excited for the adventure of a lifetime, but it all comes to a tragic end when your roommate is murdered and the police think that you are involved if you didn't do it outright. That's the story of Amanda Knox, an American student who was convicted of murder twice and then exonerated twice. Amanda, her boyfriend, and a third suspect were all convicted of the brutal murder of 21-year-old Meredith Kircher, a British exchange student. Meredith was stabbed inside her house while her roommates were gone for the night. When details came out about Amanda's supposed uh, promiscuity, it was believed that Meredith was murdered in a sex game gone wrong. Amanda and her boyfriend, Rafael Selechito, uh, uh, were questioned for hours by the police. When they couldn't take any more, they both confessed. Rafael spoke first. He said that Amanda's alibi was a lie. Uh, she wasn't with him the entire night of Meredith's murder. Amanda told the police that her memories were fuzzy, but she recalled her boss, local bar owner, Dia Patrick Lum, uh, Lumumba, being at the house. And remembered hearing Meredith scream. Then there was a third suspect, Rudy uh, Guiday. Rudy's fingerprints and DNA were found in the house. He was arrested after fleeing the country. He added another confusing layer to the story. He claimed that he spent the evening with Meredith when while he was in the bathroom, an unknown man broke into the house and murdered her. As the weeks, months, and years passed, new evidence came out that cast doubt on everyone's stories, from the defendants to the prosecutors. So who was telling the truth? What really happened to Meredith Kircher on the night of November 1st, 2007? Did Amanda Knox and uh, Raphael Selechito get away with murder, or were they repeated victims of investigative errors? Decide for yourself next week on Time Suck. Right now, let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. Our first update comes from a, a fantastic sack, of course. Kedra. 
Holderman, uh, who gave me a little phonetic help, uh, wrote, no end, you fucker. Thank you, <laughs> Kedra. I'm probably saying your name wrong. It's still, it's probably like Kedra. Uh, Master Sucker and holder of the leash of Bojangles until he turns on you. I've been driving for 12 hours. I may be delirious, but I'm so excited. I can officially tie two of your sucks together, which I'm not sure many can do. Here's the deal. I come from a badass family uh, whom are obvious descendants of Nimrod. Nice. Family of heroes, if you will. My fifth great-grandfather was awarded the very first Congressional Medal of Honor for a single act of bravery, posthumously. And you did say, uh, I can't wait for you to fuck that word up. I had, I would have said posthumously if you wouldn't have wrote that. So I was like, oh yeah, I need to look that one up. Uh, JK, anywho, I digress. My great-grandfather on my other side, fathers, also received the Congressional Medal of Honor and many other incredible decorations for a single act of bravery for his actions in World War I which was later made into a movie, The Lost Battalion. He was highly decorated and a man you would definitely enjoy sucking on. LOL, epic, by the way. Uh, and this leads me to the reason for my email. As I mentioned, I just completed a very long drive up the butthole of California and back to her fleshy tanned calves. I had time for a lot of sucking. Managed to complete the end of the night's uh, Templar II, the Aztecs sucked, the Donner Party suck, and motherfucking Pancho Villa, and I started the Toy Box Killer suck. Uh, ooh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, here's where my curious tale takes a twist. Hope you're still reading. My aforementioned great-grandfather was Colonel Nelson Miles Holderman from June to October of 1916, before World War I. He was stationed in California and participated in the hunt for none other than Pancho motherfucking Villa. Onward or backwards in this mini time stuck timeline, the Colonel's sister, Lucifina, oops, I mean Emma Holderman, birthed Dana Lamb. This man went on with his uh, wife, Ginger, Gigi, to build their own canoe, a 16-footer, which they dubbed the Vagabond and paddled down the Pacific coast by themselves. Another necessary time suck if you ask me. They paddled to South America and during their exploration may have during their exploration may have discovered the lost city. This is chronicled in their story, The Lost City. And just to throw this little twist uh, related to Toy Box Killer, um, years later as a direct relative, I own and operate Peaceful Hearts for Change. I partner with the County of Riverside providing much needed access to alternative mental health therapy with horses. Just started the Toy Box Killer and feel it's important to mention you never truly know your neighbors. Several years ago, I received an immediate client. This turned out to be one of the 13 Turpin children rescued from the awful situation back in 2018 in Paris, California. Worked with her for a year, helped her find her way through that tragic part of her life. She is now a productive member of society, and I'm not ashamed to say my horses assisted in that transition. Anyway, thanks for making poop scooping enjoyable. Thanks for never holding Bojangles back. Good boy. Keep on sucking. Loving the pooty and juju. P.S. My dog is a uh, Pitsky Husky Pitbull mix named Gypsy, and I often call her juju. I've loved every story uh, of those crazy fuckers antics. Just made it home. I'm definitely delirious. Hope this made sense. Love, love everything you do. Five out of five stars for keeping me busy while I shovel and lift a ton of horse shit daily. Your devoted member of the cult and curious, Kedra Holderman. Uh, P.S. My husband's best friend is a direct relative of Mr. Pancho Villa, so my great-grandfather hunted his great-grandfather. Crazy. So much love for the entire team. Oh, wow. Okay, that's so much. You know, actually, you reminded me to try to, like, uh, put Pootie and Juju back into a story. Thank you for that. And thanks for sharing the incredible history with your family and some family friends. Uh, love that you're actually aware of all of that. So that's uh, that's really cool. I have, I do not know nearly that much about my own family at all, at all, at all. And now Super Sucker Steve has some interesting information to uh, share with us. Let's get into this. Steve writes, Dear Suckmaster, years ago I heard about you on The Riz Show. And you even read my story about being carjacked while listening to your podcast. Wanted to give you some updates. The carjacker has since been caught, arrested, and sentenced to over 20 years in prison. Since that event and through COVID and the opinion more people have had about law enforcement, I got burned out. Oh, sorry, man. Really bad. Didn't love my job anymore. Time for a change. 
Magic had been a hobby. And out of the blue, I got a call from a friend with a talent agency. I thought Dan took a risk with his business, or, you know, podcast. Why can't I do something different? I had the support of my girlfriend, who will soon be my wife in March. Hey, Lucifina, and my kids. So I left an over 14-year career as a police officer to be an entertainer. Working for the St. Louis-based Circus Kaput, I have been able to perform magic, make balloon animals, juggle, and stilt walk. I get to make people happy for a living, not getting rich, but I love it. That is fucking awesome. Uh, I'm happy for you. That is fucking awesome. Now for a uh, close call Cummins Law. I volunteered to perform at my daughter's school Christmas party as a divorced dad. I get to look like the loving father I am by doing a whole magic show for a room full of first graders. Oh, this is great. I've been listening to the Mengele podcast in the car. As I was setting up my speaker for the music during the show, I thought my Bluetooth on my phone was off. Yep, that's how it happens. Just then I hear nothing other than the Suckmaster talking about Nazi Germany in a room full of first graders. Fortunately, I was able to shut it off before anything adult was said, but damn, it was a close call. Not sorry for the long email. Thanks for all the joint inspiration you bring. I listen every week. Wouldn't change a thing. Three out of five stars and keep on sucking, Steve. Steve, I'm fucking so happy for you, man. That's awesome, man. You're uh, you're doing what you love. I'm sorry that you got burnt out doing another very important job, but uh, happy that you're just uh, happy and, and moving forward in a great way in your life. So thanks for sharing that story and glad uh, I was a tiny part of it inspiration-wise in some way. And now let's uh let's uh let's get another uh little little shout out now. Little uh shout out from a, a sweet sucker named Tori. Tori says, taking a chance and sending this in early. The intended day is January 30th. This is my thinly veiled attempt at getting my message considered to be read. Sorry about the hassle. Thanks for consideration. If my message is read, maybe don't read my last name. Done. Cut it out. Keep this message a surprise. Um, hail and well met Suckmaster General, right hand of Nimrod, total uh and totally rock and roll leader of our cult oh, That's nice. The the very important message I have to share with you, should you choose to take the task, is that January thirty first, the birthday, is the birthday, excuse me, of a very dedicated and enthusiastic longtime member of the cult, a space scissor who has dragged me into listening to your mad rambles, the most awesome nerd and an overall fan of all things weird and crazy, my dad. Oh, fuck yeah. It'll be his big four oh. Oh, young dad. And I know he would be uh, so stoked to hear a birthday shout out in his honor, even if not exactly on his birthday. My dad, Joseph, is truly the best, always extremely supportive and enthusiastic. So much of who I am is a result of his influence. He has shared with me so many of his interests, so much of his sense of humor, and so much love and support. Since he's been listening uh, to the show for so long and introduced me to it a while back, I can't think of a more perfect way to celebrate the occasion. Thanks for everything you do, Dan, and give my dad and I another great thing to nerd out about together. Hail Nimrod, three out of five stars. Also, if you could read this message for me, I love you forever, Dad. You will always be my Superman from Bug. Thank you, Time Suck Team. Also, sorry if I sent this more than once. Just trying to get a good chance of surprise. Well, you did it, Bug. Uh, and that is so awesome. I love how uh, close you are to your dad. That's, um, man, very cool that Joseph is such an awesome guy. Happy birthday, Joseph. And fight, 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 fight. I'm going to have that in my head forever now. Even though there's no rhythm to it. I just want to keep saying fight. And we have one more. We're going to end on a, another solid message from another uh, solid meat sack with a cool connection to the show. Let us hear what uh, the marvelous Melissa has to say. Melissa writes, greetings, Master Sucker. My name is Melissa. We've chatted before. I wanted to give you an overdue update on a project you helped inspire. I don't know if you'll read this one on the updates, but I hope you will. Long time ago, I reached out. We chatted because you inspired me to create content. After your Titanic episode, I became engrossed in the story of the ship's second officer. You were kind enough to chat with me, told me you were proud of what I was doing. Uh, I wanted to give you an update. What if I said, what if I stopped it right there? And I was like, I was fucking kidding. I, I never thought this was a good idea. No, this is all. <laughs> this is all. You told me you were proud of what you're doing. I was, I was lying. I, don't, I was uh, spaced off. I just agreed because I didn't know what you were saying. No, I remember. Uh, I wanted to give you an update on the project I undertook. 
You had me mention, you had mentioned, excuse me, what a badass Charles Lightoller was. After surviving the Titanic, he went on to rescue 130 men during the Dunkirk evacuation. Since you recently tackled World War II, I thought you'd like to know I tracked down his boat, the Sundowner, that he used during Operation Dynamo. It had been in a museum in the UK where it had fallen into disrepair. It is no longer seaworthy, but I found out that two awesome guys had saved her and are working to fix her uh, out of their own pockets. I went and visited the boat. Now we have joined forces to save this boat by crowdsourcing. Couldn't believe that the boat was in such awful shape. It's going to cost a lot of money to fix her, but we have built a website and are campaigning in both the US and the UK to save her. I'm writing to say that because of your podcast and commitment to telling excellent stories, oh, thanks. I felt extra mush mouth today. So I don't know if I, it was that today, but I, I tried. Um, we are going to save this piece of history. We have a website, sundowner.online. And I just want to thank you for being awesome and inspiring me to help keep the legacy afloat. Was that pun intended? I like it. Uh, you don't know the people you inspire daily. Keep on sucking, Melissa. And then, yes, yeah, uh, sundowner.online. Well, thanks, Melissa. And uh, yeah, it is. I, do, I feel very fortunate that this fucking mush-mouthed idiot speaking right now is able to inspire anybody. Half the time in the middle of these episodes, I'm like, what the fuck? I should, just, I should stop. I should stop right now. But I do like it. I like the challenge and I like learning all this stuff. And I'm glad uh, that uh, it inspires people in any way. So very, very thankful. Thank you uh, all for sending these messages. What a fun way to start 2023. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Uh, you know what? I hope you have a, have a great week. This week, starting the new year, I, uh, I, I, I just hope you try not to blame any board games on uh, satanic influences. And, uh, you know, just instead, get into it, deep dive on these games, and uh, keep on sucking. Add Magic Productions. You know it's coming! Join me! Fight! 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 I am fighting man! Look at my defense shield! Check out my melee sword! Fight! Fight! Fighting man! Fight! 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 I can! I am fighting man! Are you fucking sick of this? How much can you take? Why don't you hit skip? You should go to another podcast! It has to be better than this! Fight! Fight! Fight, 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 fight. I'm in your head. I don't know. Why am I doing this? I don't, I don't even like it now. Fight, 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 fight. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.